All right. Hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. Uh, hang on, I'll just take off the overlay. Uh, my name is Dale. I, I'm Dale the Real Seeker, and today we have a special treat for you guys. So um, today is actually the final panel review show on topics related to the historicity of the Shroud of Turin. After this, we're going to be looking at the more scientific evidence related to the images. But for today, we've got uh, a great panel addressing the uh, limestone dust and pollen studies on the shroud, as well as the Pontius Pilate coins. And um, we have uh, Justin Robinson here. So if, if there's time, I want to try to fit in his expertise on the bronze coins as well. So yeah, um, before we uh, get into the topic, I just want to introduce the panel. So. Uh, immediately to my right, we have everyone's favorite Shroud skeptic, Hugh Ferry. Hey, Hugh. Hi, Welcome uh, back. Uh, we also have returning uh, Joe Marino. Hey, Joe. It's been a, been hey. a while since you've been on. Uh, yeah. How's everything on your end? Good. Excellent. Any uh, updates for us at all? Or? Um, well, I learned of a new new book, another new book. I'm keeping a list. I I don't trust my memory anymore. I, I I've got a list on a document listing the the names of the of the people doing books. I think at the, at the at the moment there's like nine books that I'm aware of that will be coming out, and some of them some big names in there as uh, as well. Awesome, awesome. All right, cool. And uh, going over to Bob Rucker, you're a returning guest as well. How's everything going with you there, Bob? Well, everything's going fine. Uh, I'm at a little bit of a disadvantage here. I'm actually uh, with my wife visiting my son in texas and so i'm in his music room these are his guitars in the background so I, i'm not i'm not at my study so i don't have access to all, all my other papers no worries um i just wanted to ask you because i remember the last time we spoke you were mentioning you wanted to check into something about the carbon dating and the the 12 versus the 16 dates did you did you follow up with that I, I, haven't, I haven't done that no i'm i'm referring to the the, the 12 dates i i think what they did uh, when they uh, carbonized the subsamples at tucson they they obtained the carbon and then split it uh, in, into two different samples so so that tucson would go from four to eight but uh when they split it based on the carbonized material you should get the same date so so that there were uh, 12 legitimate uh, and separate dates on the subsamples and not, and not 16. I think that's my understanding at this that point uh, at this point but I'd like to check that with uh, Tristan Casabianca. Awesome all right cool and now we have uh, our newbie to the Shroud Wars Justin Robinson so uh, first of all uh, welcome to the show Justin and uh, thank you thank you I just want to give you some time as obviously you're new to the show. So maybe take some time to introduce the audience as to who you are, how you got wrapped up in the shroud and a bit about your faith journey, if you don't mind sharing. Yes, of course. Well, uh, I mean, certainly I, my interest in the shroud of Turin came when I was a very small boy and, uh, and I caught my mother reading a book uh, and it was a paperback book when she was absolutely engrossed in it. And it had a, a, a strange photograph, black and white photograph of a bearded man on the cover. Uh, and the book was Ian Wilson's uh, book, the, Shroud, the, the Turin Shroud. And, and it, it became the very first grown-up book that I ever read. Um, and that, in a way, I think sparked my love of history. I, I'm currently employed as a, as a historian for one of the largest coin companies in Europe. And uh, the company sells a wide range of rare coins, and it's my 
job to sort of investigate the stories behind the coins and i love it and i mean I, there's never a dull moment i mean one one day i could be writing about the coins of the second world war and the next day i might be looking at the a coin from ancient Greece or, or from Napoleon, and you know that. So it's it, it's absolutely fascinating stuff. And uh, one of my first assignments, which was quite uncanny, because I've always had an interest in the shroud, but one of my first uh, assignments with the company was uh, we acquired a, a large number of gold um, Byzantine coins uh, with the bearded face of Christ on them. And I was asked to give a presentation to the sales team about them. And of course, it was a, a perfect opportunity for me to sort of share um, uh, about the shroud and about the, the, the similarity and the points of uh, similarity. And uh, and it was great. And I mean, the, the coins sold very quickly. And unfortunately, gold coins are a bit outside of my pay grade. Um, but I've always wanted to, to have a look at um, sort of fascinated by the Byz Byzantine coinage. And, uh, and I was actually looking through a, a list of uh, a, a folder of um, sort of Byzantine anonymous follicles, the, 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 the bronze coins. Uh, and I was struck in particular with one, which I realized I really needed to acquire. Um, and it was one of the first coins that was actually uh, struck, one of the first anonymous performances that was struck. Um, they, they struck gold coins beforehand, but, uh, but in 969, um, the emperor, uh, John Zemiskis, um, actually um, struck a, a, a circulating coin uh, to go out to, to, to Byzantine, to, to, throughout the Byzantine Empire there in Constantinople. And when I looked at the coin, and I, I you know, and I, and I do appreciate it's it's very subjective, and that's why it's always a good idea to have a look at the coin and decide for yourself. Because the similarities between what I was looking at at this particular coin, which is only half a centimeter in diameter, it's tiny, uh, but the similarities between that and, and the image, the lines that appear on the shroud of Turin. Uh, are, I think, absolutely extraordinary. I've, I've got the coin in my hand. I, I'm going to hold it up. You're not going to see a huge amount of detail, uh, but this is this is the coin, and you can see how small it is. Um, and um, and for me, as I said, when I when I started to actually look through it, the the one thing that you have to remember about uh, about coins and how they were struck, of course, is that they were oh. I can see Hugh's holding one up as well. That's great. <laughs> Super. Um, the, the problem, uh, and I'm sure Hugh will, will, will agree with me, is that the difficulty is, is it's finding one that actually has a good level of detail uh, around the face because these coins would have circulated. They would have been in and out of people's pockets. They would have circulated for many decades. And, and of course, the, the, the raised area where all the face detail is would usually be the first thing that's been rubbed off. So, so many times you can find a, a Byzantine coin that just has a perfect oval where, where, where the face of Christ would have appeared. Um, so it's they're, they're quite rare to find ones that actually have a good level of detail. Uh, and the other the other point to remember, of course, when, you, when you're looking at a coin and, and comparing it, in, in this case with the, the image on the shroud, is to remember that the, the coin artist, of course, would have carved directly onto the die. And then the, the, the image then that was actually struck on the coin would, would effectively be a mirror image. It would be reversed uh, of what he had actually struck. So when you do a, when you look at this sort of reversed image and you hold it up with an image of the shroud, you can see my theory certainly is that the coin artist copied the lines as carefully as possible. Um, now later uh, coin designers uh, added their own little embellishments. So they would depict Christ, for example, with his eyes open as opposed to with his eyes closed uh, and added their own details. W what I love about 
this particular coin struck in 969 is that the artist, as I said, seems to have just tried to copy the details. And so suddenly you have this this incredible amount of of detail, um, which I think is uh, is just almost uh, a compelling case that the that the artist, uh, as I said, in working in Constantinople in the 10th century, actually saw what we call today the Shroud of Turin. And um, you know, if you have an opportunity to examine examine the coin yourself to see to see images of it, you know, obviously you can form your own conclusions. But I think it's uh, it's it's enormously uh, it, it was very persuasive for me, and uh, and so I wanted to sort of get it out there and, and share it. And you know, I've had I found a couple of other coins since then which which also add significant detail as well to that. So uh, so that's really where I where I've been sort of coming from. And, uh, and as I said, I, one of the things that I absolutely love about the Shroud of Turin is that for me, it's where history, science and faith all combine in one incredible object. And, uh, and I think that, um, you know, there's never a dull moment when you're looking at the, 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 the study of the Shroud. Uh, you have uh, people coming from all out different angles, all approaches. Uh, new evidence being sort of found all the time and challenged indeed, and that's what, what, as any good science should be. Um, you know, it's always good to, to to form your own conclusions and to make your own determinations. And I I love that, and it's it's wonderful to have a small part to play in it. Awesome, awesome. Well, it's great to to have you on the show. And it's funny, uh, just before we get into today's topics, um, we actually just got an update on the Hungarian Prey Codex from. Uh, a guy named Simon. I don't know if he wants me to reveal his full name, but I, I promised him I would show on the show. He thinks he's found um, the strip on the. Uh, so is that? Can you guys see that? Or um, I'm not seeing anything at the moment. We're no, there. It is. Ah, now I am. No. Yeah. Oh yeah. All right. So as you can see, he uh, Simon thinks that uh, this green. Uh, highlighted in green here this is the strip the side strip on the shroud of Turin, and he's proposed what's going on here he's proposed that as a okay the, the, he's proposed the, the, this the, yeah that that coloring in is uh, uh stephen uh jones in uh, australia has got a diagram very similar to that but he thinks that that green thing um is also that the colored in you should color in the sheet underneath jesus in green as well so that the whole thing is the shroud mm. um yeah it's it's he's just saying that's like the the side strip kind of thing but so i yeah, just wanted to yeah. show that just as a an update to our thing but yeah um on that i think we can get into today's topics um so let's start with the the issue of the limestone dust studies and the pollen studies that have been done on the shroud. So I just want to go around. Um, perhaps we'll start with you, Justin, this time. Um, what's your take on the pollen studies and the limestone dust studies? I, I am, I, I said, I have been very impressed. I mean, I, I have to say this isn't my main field of speciality. So I'm approaching this from the perspective of an enthusiastic amateur. Um, and, and I think that uh, the work that sort of the Max Fry did initially um, in, in, in going through and identifying um, the different um, species of plants and things like that, that that have been found on it. I, I think the, these are, this is a, a fascinating field of study. It's the, and, and it just helps in the corroboration of it. Now, I know that there has been 
his findings have over the years been been challenged and i and i do appreciate that the, there are very different uh, strong differences of opinion there but but i think that uh, what what he was able to do certainly was not to uh, i think that uh, as, as i said by by identifying certainly species of, of plant from uh, from Jerusalem and, and through to Edessa and through into Constantinople and then through into to sort of Europe and, and France and Turin, it helps to show the journey that the shroud has, has taken. Uh, and, uh, and and I think, again, it, it's, a, it's another absolutely fascinating field of study. And I hope I hope in some respects that, that, that a lot more is done in that sort of area, because I do know that uh, some of Max Fry's findings have been challenged recently, which is all good. Um, and, and I think it's important to, 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 to do that. Um, you know, I think that uh, what I what I do tend to find is that if you want to go down the, the, the hypothesis that the Shroud is, a, is medieval, then, then you're adding to the work of the medieval forger enormously, who, who now obviously has to go off and, and, and find um, plants or, or pollen to actually put on, the, on his medieval forgery it, at a time when pollen, you know, this was, not, this was not something that could be easily discernible or even seen. Uh, and I think that, uh, that this is another extra little sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it, it, all, it, all helps, it all helps to corroborate, shall we say, uh, that the central premise that the Shroud cannot be a medieval forging, and I do appreciate that uh, Mr. Farry is probably going to disagree with me there, but it's uh, it's all good. Awesome, awesome. All right, cool. So let's turn to you next, Bob. Um, what's your take on these the limestone dust studies and the pollen studies? Um, uh, yes, I've I've not specialized on those, so it's interesting for me to listen. Um, but uh, you know, I specialized on carbon dating, and uh, more recently than on image formation. Uh, and I think those are two of the more uh, interesting and, and important items. So um, I, I, the, these other studies are kind of sidelines for me. Uh, so I, I think a, a lot of the uh, doubt that has been cast on some of the previous evidence regarding these items was just due to the, the average carbon date that was obtained in 1988 of 1260 to 1390. Uh, and so I, I think my work on the carbon dating is important here and, and about to try and move us away from uh, anyone believing that that's the correct date. I don't think anyone should uh, believe that that's the correct date for the Shroud uh, And so I, I think the sequence of, of reasoning here should be, first of all, to realize that the three samples that were sent to the three laboratories uh, were cut into smaller pieces, those are called subsamples. So it went from three samples going to the three laboratories to 12 different subsamples. Uh, and so those 12 subsamples uh, were carbon dated, and that's a process uh, whereby the ratio of carbon 14 to carbon 12 is measured. And I, I agree with the measurements that were done, uh, but, but I, I don't think that the equations that were used to calculate the dates from those ratios were correct because the equations involved an assumption that the carbon-14 to carbon-12 ratio only changes due to decay of carbon-14. And I think in this particular case, that, that assumption is not true. So I think that the calculation of the dates from the ratios 
what was not legitimate. Uh, and I think that can be proven by uh, realizing that, that each measurement would produce two values, the date and the uncertainty. Uh, and so it's the uncertainty that tells you what the date means. Uh, and so you have to consider both the dates and, and the uh, uncertainties for those 12 subsamples. Uh, and so the first thing you, you need to do uh, is to do a statistical analysis. This is called a uh, chi-squared statistical analysis to determine whether the dates and the uncertainties are consistent with each other for the 12 subsamples. And it turns out in, in my analysis uh, of the data from uh, the, the published results that indicate that there's only a 1.4% probability that, that the dates and uncertainties are consistent with each other. Therefore, you have about a 99% of probability that there's a systematic measurement error involved in producing these 12 measured dates. Uh, now, when, when the dates from each laboratory uh, are averaged so that you get three dates, one from each laboratory, th then you recognize that uh, the, the carbon date is a function or depends on the distance from the bottom of the clock. Uh, the, the closer you get to the center of the clock, uh, the, the more it tends toward, the more recent it tends, and uh, and there's there's a reason for that. The further, the closer to the bottom of the clock, it uh, gives you older dates, and that shouldn't be the case. Uh, you're you're testing these samples all from one piece of clock. They should all be consistent with each other. But they weren't, but they weren't. So so that that so that that again is another indication that there, there's a systematic measurement error in these values. Uh, and so therefore, it's not correct to simply average them to, to get a value of 1260. It's simply not correct to average the values. Uh, and that is because there's a systematic measurement error involved in them. So we, we need to realize, we need to do away with the concept that the carbon dating proves that, that this is from the Middle Ages. It doesn't. So that, that's where I would start. All right. Okay. Awesome. And just to clarify, Bob, because uh, I think uh, I just want to make sure I'm hearing you properly. Did you say that you think that the pollen and limestone dust studies can be used to date the date the shroud in some ways? Uh, so it's not just linking it to Jerusalem, but it can be used to date it? Or did I mishear that? The pollen and what else? The pollen and the limestone dust can somehow date the shroud in your view? Or? No, no, I'm, no, I'm not saying that. I'm okay. not saying that. I'm, I'm saying that those items are kind of sideline items in my consideration. And I, uh, I was speaking there uh, to let it be known that we need to move away from any concept that the carbon dating proves that the shroud was from 1260 to 1390. The evidence just doesn't show that. Awesome. All right, cool. So yeah, Joe, I'll turn it to you. What, what's your sort of opening take on the limestone dust studies and the, the pollen studies that have been done on the shroud? Well, there's a, a relatively recent um, addition to the shroud crowd. Well, her name is, I'm, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing her name right, Mar Marzia Boy, B-O-I from Spain. Um, she presented um, in Valencia in Spain in 2012. Uh, she has a peer-reviewed article in Archaeometry, which is published by Oxford University, about the pollen. Uh, that's accessible online. That's listed in my um, bibliography that you're going to post about the botany. 
Um, she's actually skeptical of the work of, of both Max Fry and Avinoam Deneen, who's, uh, you know, was an expert in the flowers of Israel and stuff. And she, he, he thought he saw a lot of flowers on, on the shroud. And she's uh, skeptical of, of both Fry's and Deneen's findings. Um, in her 2016 archaeometry paper, she said, uh, pollen evidence shows that the relic could contain botanical substances used in anointing and embalming during funeral and burial rites in ancient times. So um, the most uh, abundant pollen found on the, sh on the shroud reveals the use of ointments. Um, and then she says, um, you'll, you'll often hear that uh, the Gundalia tornaforte has been found on the shroud. She thinks that's a mistake. And I'm going to read another long quote here. She says, um, uh, the pollen that's usually identified as Gundalia tournaforte confirms and authenticates the theory that the corpse kept in the shroud received a funeral and burial with all the honor and respect that would have been customary in the Hebrew tradition. The largest amount of uh, helichrysum. Helichrysum. Thank you, you. Originates from the form used to produce its oil, utilizing exclusively fresh flowers. The smaller quantities of the other pollen types can be explained by the use of products derived from other botanical components. These botanical products have contributed to an exceptional preservation of the fabric right up to the present time. They have protected the linen by acting as powerful insect and fungal repellents. At the same time, they have caused the yellowish tinge of the shroud because these are substances that oxidize on coming into contact with the air. So then in um, 1986, uh, Dr. Joseph Kolbeck, who was an optical crystallographer, uh, and also uh, Dr. Eugenia Nutowski, who was a Middle Eastern archeologist, uh, performed some experiments in Jerusalem tombs and they got samples from the tombs and uh, then compared them to a, a shroud sticky tape sample from the foot area. And then they submitted those samples to uh, Dr. Ricardo Levi Setti of the Enrico Fermi Institute of the University of Chicago. And he said it was an, an unusually, unusually close match. Um, now, Kolbeck said that that didn't prove that the aragonite on the shroud came from Jerusalem, but that it was a reasonable expectation. Um, the late uh, research archaeologist Paul Maloney, um, who was uh, his his group was the Association of Scientists and Scholars International for the Shroud of Turin, and the acronym for that was ASSIST. Um, he tried in 2016 and 17 to find out if the limestone could have come from an area apart from Jerusalem. So Maloney contacted um, Dr. Bryant Wood of the Associates uh, for Biblical Research in Pennsylvania to see if he could get samples from a, a tomb complex uh, near the garden tomb, which is the 
not the t tomb of the Holy Sepulchre that most people think that is, is the authentic burial uh, tomb of Jesus, but uh, the one that many Protestants believe um, was the tomb called the Garden Tomb. Um, so Dr. Wood brought a team over there and um, compared, uh, got the samples and did a report that he sent to Maloney along with the samples uh, an assist was going to uh, prepare a proposal for additional testing. Unfortunately, um, Paul Maloney died um, less than two years later, and, and that really never got off the ground. So I, I actually just contacted the ABR recently to see if there has been any follow-up. And the guy basically said, um, no, there hasn't been, but he was going to try to try to pick it back up so of course if i ever get any um feedback or follow-up on that i'll i'll let everybody know um now paul maloney presented a paper at the 1999 richmond conference uh it was called a contribution towards a history of botanical research on the shroud of turin um, that paper is not accessible online it's only available in the written proceedings um and he raised uh, a couple questions that I'm going to relate. Um, and I'll keep in mind, it's possible that the restoration that was done in 2002 might have um, made these lines of inquiry hard or impossible. So Paul asked three questions in that paper, which were, are the mineral-coated pollen found only on the non-image side of the cloth? The second was, can the proposed statistical distribution less at the edge, increasing to a peak in the center of the image, be verified by future sampling? And then the third question was, can additional samples from the shroud allow us to explore in depth the matter of the existence of uh, phytoliths, which uh, on the cloth, which is Pyphilus, maybe Hugh knows how to pronounce that better than I am. Uh, P-H-Y-T-O-L-I-T-H-S. Those are defined as rigid microscopic structures made of silica found in some plant tissues and persisting after the decay of the plant. So, um, yeah, I'm afraid, uh, I'm afraid the restoration of 2002 um, has possibly um, really messed up uh, the possibilities of, of future botanical research. Gotcha. And just the, so just to clarify from the audience, like what do you think we can conclude from from these studies um, about the shroud kind of thing in general? Like what's your opinion on it? Um, I think Marza Boy's uh, comment about the the link with the um, funeral rites is very um, significant. So um, I think that does suggest that it's that's more ancient than medieval because she's she's linking them specifically to the ancient rites and not not from the Middle Ages. Gotcha. Perfect. All right. And uh, turning lastly to uh, Hugh Ferry, who's going to have to unmute himself. Um, and uh, yeah, what what's your take on these studies? And Feel free to share your screen. I know you've prepared some. Yeah. Um, 
I'll, I'll take them one at a time rather than go into it all in one go because there's a lot coming up, gents. Um, let's start with the with the pollen. So I'm sharing screen, sharing screen, entire screen, sharing screen. <laughs> I love this. Share. All right. So I'll add it to the screen. Right. There we go. Look at that. Now I'm going to get rid of this. You'll be pleased to know. An ever descending. Right. Can we can we see that? Do you want mm -hmm. it? Do you uh, want it in full screen, or do you want me to switch to cinema mode, or? Oh, what have I got? Let's put it on full screen. Shall we? Here we go. Okay. Right. Can can you can you see that? Mm -hmm. Yep. It starts with pollen in red at the top, and it ends with www.paldat at the bottom. So um, on the left-hand side, which is uh, almost uh, illegible, but if you peer at it closely, I can just about see it, is a prize list of 58 species, almost 58 species uh, of plants uh, whose pollen he thought he detected um, on the shroud. And there are, as you can see, six good reasons for suspecting that um, that, that, that it's all wrong. Uh, in fact, um, partially because of these six reasons, Abinoam Dunin, uh, who wrote, yes, as, as Joe pointed out, Flora of Israel, and was undoubtedly one of the uh, most important botanists to work in Israel of the 20th century, um, he worked closely with Fry to start with, and then later with Alan Wanger. And although I suppose he must have been a Jew, um, he very much thought he saw imprints of dozens of different flowers, I think at least 28 different kinds of uh, Israeli foliage, not necessarily all flowers, sometimes leaves and buds and so on. Um, and, and, and he saw these things all over the shroud. Um, curiously, they didn't interlock uh, with Fry's list at all. Um, I think there was a slight overlap of about 10%, 20-15%, something like that. And in the end, he decided that because of the uh, objections that I list above, and I quote this often, uh, he wrote that he didn't think that the identification of the pollen uh, could be given any credence whatsoever, which was interesting for a person who was so keen on having thought he'd found his own collections of, uh, of plant uh, evidence on the shroud. Okay, so what specifically did um, can we find fault with? And then we'll explain why Fry, surprisingly, wasn't an idiot at all. I mean, he was a, he was a very well respected criminologist. His doctorate was in the botany of Sicily, and his um, paper on taking forensic samples by using sticky tape was absolutely seminal and the first of its kind, and um, was the was the root of a lot of forensic investigation even today. Um, anyway, he and the uh, shroud observers and various other people have noticed uh, approximately two to three at the most pollen grains per sample, which meant that <clears throat> apart from on one particular slide where there seemed to be hundreds of pollen grains, which we won't go into now, in general, he was identifying um, plants from about 200 pollen grain. Now, to, to identify 60 different species from 200 different pollen grains is completely unrealistic. It's uh, uh, totally unrealistic compared to the kind of pollen uh, assemblage 
that people who study pollen assemblages um, have been studying since. Generally speaking, you'd get something like between eight and 10 different kinds of species, um, certainly not, not 60. The precision of those 60 species is slightly absurd. Secondly, uh, most, this is the, the entomophilus pollen. Pollen gets distributed in two ways. Basically, it gets blown about from the wind, uh, mostly from trees and grass, some grasses, bushes, things like that. Um, in which case, the flowers are very small and um, they're, perhaps you think of willow catkins and things like that, or, or when yew pollen is, uh, is, uh, is fresh, you shake a yew tree and great clouds of yellow powder go all over the place. So yew uh, <clears throat> windborne pollen is far, far commoner uh, when, when it's found fortuitously uh, on uh, bits of clothing and on uh, earth samples than is uh, insect-borne pollen. But nearly all, well, not, about two-thirds, two-thirds to, to three-quarters of fry's pollen were borne by insects, which means they must have come from flowers which only release their pollen rather reluctantly when an insect visits them and makes you wonder how they ended up on a cloth. Secondly, or thirdly rather, we've got the geographical distribution. Fry was so keen to find plants that he could identify from the Middle East that uh, there are uh, nearly something like four-fifths of them are from specimens which do not grow in Europe, according to him. And this is completely unrealistic, uh, given the length of time that the shroud has been carted around Europe um, and shown to people and taken outside and so on. The fourth thing is that the distribution of species, uh, even assuming that his species made any sense, is also completely unrealistic. In any pollen assemblage, nearly all the pollen is from trees and grass. Um, but in fries, uh, I think there's only two trees and a few shrubs. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, fifth is not so obvious. Fry said that his pollen was very clear and easy to identify, whereas everybody else who's looked at pollen on the shroud, both on the back of it, which was uh, Riggie's pollen uh, sucked off with his, uh, with his little hoover system, and also those who studied the pollen on the uh, shroud samples that were taken by Rogers, uh, say that all the pollen is either coated in something or degraded, and it doesn't look as clean and nice as Fry suggested his pollen were. Incidentally, his paper in uh, Shroud Spectrum International is uh, illustrated with one or two um, scanning electron microscope photographs, like the ones below, uh, none of which are from the Shroud, all of which are from books of um, specimens um, but, so he didn't publish any that he actually took himself, which leads one to suspect that he may not, in fact, have used a scanning electron microscope at all to try and identify um, his, his pollens. And then the sixth one is that even today, it's, it's very, very difficult to identify pollen to the nearest species. The one, two, three, four, five, six, nine uh, photographs that I've got there are all thistles. And, um, one thing I think Marcia Boy was, was correct in is that it's very difficult to spot which particular spiky bit of pollen belongs to which particular spiky plant. And to identify Gundelia tuniforti and go, I'm positive it's that, 
um, is probably most unwise. When some of his slides were studied by Orville Dahl, uh, Thomas Litt, and Uri Baruch, who were all palynologists um, in their various fields, German, American, and Israeli, none of them were able to confirm more than a handful of um, Fry's identifications. Incidentally, <clears throat> talking of Marcia Boy, she's probably the only one who's wrong. Because as you can see, all these thistles here are quite big. You can see they're the 10 uh, micrometer bars, and they're all, all those bars are 10 micrometers. But one of these pollens is considerably smaller, about half the size of all the others. That's the helichrysium that Marcia Boy thinks she's found. Um, so I wonder uh, if she's right there. <clears throat> anyway, so what did Fry do wrong? Well, he was absolutely a pioneer in his day, and there were vanishingly few uh, examples of um, pollen that, that, he, could, that could he, he could look up. There were a few scanning electron microscope reference books, but they uh, contained very small numbers of um, electron microscope uh, photographs, and they were from very particular um, archaeological horizons because pollen is mostly used to identify ancient um, climate and not forensically, funnily enough. So Fry, of course, had to go out and collect pollen. So he went off on these two expeditions to Turkey and Israel um, where he collected pollen. And of course, he mostly collected pollen from flowers. In other words, insect-borne pollen. And then with his reference specimens in front of him, he then matched shroud pollen to the nearest one he could find. So it's hardly surprising that if he found a spiky pollen and his only spiky pollen that he'd found was Gondelia tourniforti, he said, well, I think it must be that. Whereas had he also collected thistles from, say, Scotland or the United States, Canada, Brazil, Norway, Japan, he'd have found that his spiky pollen matched just about all of them. So he would have realized that it wasn't wise to be quite so precise in his identification. Now, I'm going to stop sharing that because I want to, whoops, lovely, move on to, if I can find it, the Marcia Boy thing. Now, she, I don't think, has ever looked at any of the pollen on the shroud. She rather decided that the pollen um, might have been used for identification. She possibly saw one of the um, electron micrograms of uh, Gundelia and decided it wasn't Gundelia, it was Helichrysum. And she, uh, her article takes evidence from Pliny the Elder and Dioscorides as her sources. And she doesn't distinguish between Roman and Jewish burial practices. And, and this is a serious mistake. She identifies four particular plants. Helichrysum, Cystus, Ferula, and Pistacia. And if we look at what Pliny the Elder says about these uh, four um, plants and how they were used in, um, in, uh, to, to attend bodies with, Helichrysum had healing and anti-inflammatory properties, combating the wound of corruption. It was also hypnotic, sedative, narcotic, and psychotropic. Cystus was used to treat wounds and as a pain reliever and in poultices to heal wounds and burns. Ferula was used to heal wounds. 
and pistachia was used to eliminate ulcers, sores and wounds and showing properties of wound and bone healing and used to combat tiredness. So the point is that all the plants that she thought were used to anoint dead bodies were in fact used to anoint living bodies to try and make them better. Now, there were also from time to time in um, Roman and Egyptian funerals used to embalm dead bodies, but mostly to prevent the corpse from smelling unpleasant. They weren't used much to anoint the body. They were just burnt in its presence. And what's more, it seems that they, such uh, effect as they would have had, would have been to preserve the body. Um, Joe actually read that one of, part of her article, uh, 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 he quoted, preservation of the shroud. But this was the last thing a Jewish burial wanted to do. They wanted everything to rot away really quickly so that they could collect the bones a year later. The whole point about uh, any kind of anointing that might have happened to a Jewish body, and there's vanishingly little evidence that there was much anointing anyway, but such as there was, it was designed to encourage corruption and decay so that the bones could be uh, collected and transferred to uh, an, an ossuary. So all in all, I'm afraid I don't, where am I got to? I'm afraid I don't think that the pollen evidence stands up at all. I can't find any palynologist who agrees with, with uh, who disagrees with any of those six points that I've suggested are uh, major obstacles to identifying Fry's pollen as at all realistic. So I give it no credence, whatever. Uh, in common with, I may say, Israel's foremost botanist and uh, various other palynologists who've studied it. That's all I've got to say about pollen. Okay. Um, did you did you have your? Do you guys? Okay, I'll open it up to. Yes, yeah, anyone want to comment on that so far? Uh, yeah. Hugh, can I can I just just come back and ask because I, I I have read. And I'm not an expert on pollen at all, so I'm going to defer to you. But um, I, I have, I know Wanga came back and said that he found, I think, 20 plants that only grow in Jerusalem and another eight pollen types from the surrounding area because he was able to conclude that of the 28 plants, I think 27 of them flowered in March and April. Uh, I, I don't know uh, whether you've got any thoughts on, on, on that. Uh, uh, is that was just in your contention is that was that mistaken sort of information or uh, wanga didn't find any pollen at all uh okay. he, I didn't, he never examined the shroud and he never examined fry's slides as far as i know not with any kind of authority he was a pediatric doctor uh, he examined photographs and he was looking for um stains of yes. flowers in particular and uh much to his uh, uh delight all the flowers uh, tended to flower in spring. Right. As indeed do about 99% of all flowering plants. <laughs> so it's not that surprising that uh, some of them, uh, th that he found this big correlation. In fact, about 10% of Fry's identifications uh, flower in the autumn. Okay. Uh, so, uh, but but that's neither here nor there. I, no. I would just add to people who, who try and defend um, Fry is that uh, there's some uh, announcement now that, in fact, all these insect-borne pollen flower, uh, flowers were collected. They weren't just uh, arrived fortuitously on the shroud, but they were collected and laid on the body yeah. at the time of the burial. Well, there's no biblical suggestion that people went 
uh, all over Israel, I may say. Some of them only grow on the shores of the Dead Sea. A lot of flies, fries plants do not grow anywhere near Jerusalem. Uh, Israel has got a very wide range of botanical horizons. So we, we've got a completely unrepresented in the Bible collection of holy women who rushed off around Jeru uh, Israel collecting flowers, mostly from thistles, thorns, nettles, uh, tumbleweed, and stuff like that. Very few of them are what we would call, as it were, uh, funeral flowers that you might put in a wreath. They mostly come from very scrubby little desert plant uh, and then laid these all over the body. But I mean, there's, there's, I, I don't find there's any evidence for that at all. And I'm sorry to um, sort of disparage the, 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 the wangers because they were very well intentioned. But when they found a rope, two crowns of thorns, two crowns of thorns, uh, nails, a hammer, um, a pair of pliers, and, yeah. and all the rest of it. They just found that the shroud was completely piled high with <laughs> so many tools and garments and bits of cloth that, uh, I'm, for me, he lost all credibility mm. um, at that point. No, I, I think I think that's an interesting premise as well. I, I think the idea that, and, and I hadn't heard that before, and thank you for sharing that regarding the insects and how most likely if there was any pollen transfer onto the, the cloth, it, it came from flowers actually being laid on it. Uh, ha, have you considered the possibility that that, that might have been done after uh, that the, the body was gone? Um, you know, if the, the cloth was being venerated in the first century um, as the burial cloth of Christ is taken from the tomb, uh, perhaps when it was on display, would flowers not have been laid on it then? I mean, and at, at different times during its uh, its existence from then. It's a, it's a yeah, it's an interesting hypothesis, and there's nothing I can say to disprove it. Um, okay. I, I think it's um, it's a, it's an ad hoc suggestion, isn't it? It's <laughs> we'd we'd have to try well, and find whether anybody ever put flowers on cloths and and so on, and then say, well, perhaps the shroud was an exception, and so on. Um, I, I think. I, I mean, I, I know. The idea, I suppose, is that anything that was laid on the cloth would have, uh, there, there is the suggestion that that would have been somehow given some sort of holy significance. And I know uh, this is the idea that, that artists would take their drawings of the shroud and place them on the shroud in order to be, sort of imbue them with some sort of, uh, sort of, you know, sort of, sort of holy significance. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, it is speculation. I, I agree. I, I find it fascinating that we can't discount the possibility that there are that there is pollen evidence there from Jerusalem. And again, I suppose that that just makes me think that the the medieval forger scenario, uh, having to go out and actually sort of identify, sort of cover, I, I, I cover think, the. I, I think that's a massive straw horse. Uh, if it's a medieval creation, then I don't think any of the pollen comes from Jerusalem. Uh, and I think, as I say, had Fry actually gone, instead of going to Jerusalem to collect mm. his flowers, had he gone to Paris and collected his flowers, he would have been able to match the pollen to a pollen assemblage from Paris or, or from, um, for all I know, from Austria, where he came from. But perhaps there are not mm. many flowers in Austria because it's so high and mountainous. But had he been to Italy, collected all the flowers from round about Turin, he would have been able to match his pollen with those just as easily as he could match them from his collection of flowers from the Middle East. So I, I, I want to bring in Joe Marino because he made he made an interesting point um, about the the more recent studies. I think it was the boy study 
where they found uh, the pollen entrenched in a blood stain on the sidereum of Oviedo, I think, right? And it's connected with these burial practices that uh, stopped after 300 AD, after the great crisis of the Roman Empire. So, Joe, did you want to pick up and engage with you on that aspect? Um, yeah, that, let's see, that that paper you're referring to a paper she wrote uh let's see she presented at a turin conference in 2015 it's called palynology uh instrument of research for the relics of the shroud of turin and sudarium of oviedo and um, that is accessible on barry site uh, shroud.com um it's about uh, it's all it's also it, at the 2017 the conference bob uh, ran uh, there was a talk on it there as well, I think. But I don't think she was there uh, in person, was she? I don't. I don't know who presented. Bob Marzo Marzo Boy wasn't at the conference, was she? I don't think. I, I don't remember. I don't think she was. I, but anyway, I and I this, don't have uh, my resources with me to check it. Um. Anyway, that that paper is uh, available online. It's about ten or twelve pages. Um, so yeah, I, I, I didn't actually reread this one. Okay. Um, I read her other one in preparation for this, but I, I, to be honest, I, I didn't reread this one. Um, but she's got quite a few, few, uh, suggestions laid out, uh, for the possible studies to be carried out on the shroud. Yeah, I, I think that one's interesting because it, it is a potential argument that dates the shroud to ancient times. So, like, yeah, Hugh, do you have anything to say on that? Or, well, no. Uh, if the shroud is ancient, it's probably got ancient pollen on it. Uh, if it's modern, it's got modern pollen on it. Uh, but you can't date pollen. Um, I mean, I dare say perhaps you could radiocarbon a tiny blob of pollen now, but not very easily. Uh, there has been some kind of rumor going about which various people including Paul Maloney firmly scotched uh, that the shroud contains pollen from plants which have become extinct um, which is nonsense there's no evidence for that and nobody ever suggested that there was it's just that it's become a rumor that started floating around so unless you can actually date the pollen by radiocarbon you can't say whether it's uh, the, the pollen embedded in blood is medieval pollen embedded in medieval blood, ancient pollen buried, embedded in ancient blood, or indeed modern pollen buried in modern blood. The palynological studies that were done by the Spanish themselves, which appear in um, a book which Joe will remember the title of, it's, it's, it's all in Spanish, uh, and it's the one that contains the, um, the, 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 the blood typing samples and all those other things, and possibly also mentioned in Cesar Barta's latest book. Um, I think they, they, they come down to four uh, genera of uh, plants. Um, I'm grasping at straws here. I think one of them is a tamarinth. But the trouble is that the tamarinth genera uh, occurs across the Mediterranean from Spain to, to Israel. And the comment that I read says, if only we could pin this down to a species, we would know whether this pollen came from Spain or from Israel. But unfortunately, we can't. Okay. Um, so that the, the, the pollen on the sudarium is not diagnostic of Israel. 
Awesome. Yeah, just before but I do. Heard, Justin will say, it is compatible so far. <laughs> but then lots of things are compatible. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> uh, I'll give it to Bob if he has anything to say. But just before I do, I, I remember at Bob's conference, it was Caesar Barda who presented this oh, yeah. argument from the ancient burial, the polis. Yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah, but Bob, do, do you have anything to say about the pollen aspect? Or? No, this is just uh, all very interesting. I, I, I think we do have to uh, evaluate each of the, you know, whether pollen or the limestone or the coins, we have to evaluate each one uh, based upon their own merits, plus or minus, and, and follow, follow the evidence where it leads. Gotcha. All right, cool. Well, um, on the limestone dust, I didn't hear Hugh mention anything about that. So I do. I've, I, well, I thought I, well, no, I mean, I'll, I'll wait for you or if you want me to, to show you a presentation on the limestone. Oh, okay. So you, you've got a presentation. Okay, cool. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. I want it. It's truly scary. Right. Here we go. Present. Share screen. Share screen. Share screen. You have to go through so many hoops. Share screen. It's popping up now. And so we're we're looking at your screen. We? You're looking at my screen? Yep, pollen. Yep. Slide. Okay. Here we go. Limestone. Can you see that? Yep. 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 On the left hand side, we have that tiny little diagram which appears is taken straight out of the uh, biblical archaeological review um thing which clearly shows that jerusalem i'm just looking at there are two sets of diagrams i may say the um positive ions and the negative ions and this is just i'm just taking the positive ions here um because they're easier to separate into their separate elements and you'll see that essentially both the jerusalem limestone and the shroud limestone separate into four nice little peaks and on the basis of that Kolbeck and Nitoski decided that the two uh, graphs were sufficiently similar to be able to identify these things and say that Jerusalem limestone is very like shroud limestone and that therefore they may have come from the same source. However, in a, um, an, an unpublished document, it's only typed out, it's um, Eugenia Nitoski's document, which Barry circulated at some point. It may be on shroud.com. Uh, she draws these two graphs slightly better and slightly more with a little bit more precision. And these are the two graphs which are immediately to the right uh, of the BAR set. And you'll see that I have put on them uh, a logarithmic scale. And then I put dots on the top of all the peaks so that I'm able to determine exactly what the counts per channel um, are for each element. And Further on the right-hand side, you will see that I've identified how many, one, two, three, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve, fifteen, about 20 different um, positive ions and how many counts per channel there are in the Jerusalem sample and in the Shroud sample. Uh, the first thing you'll spot is that there seems to be a great deal more in the Shroud, and that's probably something to do with the fact that it was examined for longer or something like that. So the two right-hand columns uh, separate it out into counts per 10,000. So uh, of all the uh, all those numbers add up at the bottom to 10,000. It's, it's a kind of percentage, if you like, so that we can compare Jerusalem limestone and Shroud limestone a little bit more closely. Um, and your 
first thing you notice um, is uh, that perhaps the calcium, there seems to be uh, about one quarter as much calcium on the shroud uh, as there is in the Jerusalem, um, in, the, in, the, in the Jerusalem sample. Uh, and there's also, uh, what, 20 times as much potassium on the shroud limestone as there is in the Jerusalem sample, which is very peculiar. Uh, we'll also find that there is, and this may be something to do with the um, frame on which the shroud sample was measured, which possibly was different from the Jerusalem sample. We'll notice that the shroud sample contains a vast amount of aluminium, which the Jerusalem sample doesn't. I don't. I think that's an artifact of the test. I don't think that is anything to do with the um, the limestone itself. Limestone's not generally associated with aluminium. However, limestone is associated with silicon. Generally speaking, if you go and take a lump of limestone just off the ground, it's not pure carbonate. It's carbonate mixed with with quartz, with silica. And as you can see, the shroud. Uh, 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 silicon component uh, is, is a great deal more than the Jerusalem silicon component. Um, and the other thing that it's interesting to watch out is that limestone uh, often has a different magnesium and calcium ratio. In other words, calcium and magnesium are quite close to each other uh, as elements in the periodic table. And calcium carbonate is often replaced with magnesium carbonate in limestone samples. And if we look at the magnesium at the top, we can see that the shroud sample contains a great deal more magnesium than the Jerusalem sample. Now, if I go back across to the left hand side, just to make life nice and easy for us, you can see that I've got two tables there. The purity of limestone defined as the carbonate compared to quartz ratio, that's silicon oxide. The Jerusalem limestone is 99.3% carbonate and only 0.7% quartz. The shroud limestone is 93% carbonate and 7% quartz. It is not unlike, you'll find, Parisian limestone, which is 95% carbonate and 5% quartz. Now, this strongly suggests that the shroud limestone is not from Jerusalem. It doesn't demonstrate that it's from Paris because that just happened to be the only paper I could find dealing with uh, different varieties of uh, different um, analyses of limestone. And then we're having a look at the purity of the limestone fraction itself, the calcium magnesium ratio. The Jerusalem limestone is particularly pure, 98% calcium and only 2% magnesium. Shroud limestone is 85% calcium and 15% magnesium. And this particular paper, I say about medieval limestone sculpture, says that Parisian limestone is 87% calcium and 13% magnesium. And all this, the, these, this data is taken from the uh, source that I've got at the bottom there, elemental characterization of medieval limestone sculpture from Parisian and Burgundian sources. So in fact, uh, these two uh, graphs of the positive secondary ions very clearly demonstrate, and I would go so far as almost to prove that the limestone sample that was measured from the shroud is not from the same variety of limestone as the limestone shroud a sample that came from Jerusalem. And I've got only one other thing to say about that, and that is that Ricardo Levi Setti uh, was a pioneer in the analysis of rocks 
using um, this kind of spectral analysis. And he knew perfectly well, he must have known that these two samples were different, very different. But he passed them without comment, because that's what he was asked to do, to Kolbeck and Nitoski, who unfortunately took them as looking very similar and therefore uh, probably the same. But I'm afraid I think there is no justification for that at all. Right. All right. Cool. So I'll, I'll open it up to, if you stop sharing, yeah, I'll open it up to free discussion on the limestone dust. Uh, Joe, I'll start with you first this time. Um, do you have anything you want to discuss or counter on the dust? Um, not really. Uh, I think Hugh brings up some valid uh, points there. Okay. Uh, Bob or Justin, anything you guys... No, I think I think it's uh, as I said. That's a very interesting. It has that. Um, your, that's your own investigation. That here is it into the into yep. the limestone. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Is that is that is that has that been published or is that? It's, uh, on, it's on my blog. It's on medievalshroud.com. Okay. Levi Seti mm. Spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's very, very interesting. I mean, like I said, I, I think all of these pollen dust that that they're all fascinating and open to interpretation. I, I was just wondering, I, I slightly left field, I know very at the start of this discussion, we mentioned the side strip. Um, and, and I know we, we're not sort of scheduled to talk about it today, but uh, that I, I found that tremendously interesting, uh, that the seam that, that when they when they took the backing cloth off the shroud in, in 2002, and they looked at the seam that actually stitched effectively the, the, the side strip to the, to the cloth. Now, Again, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, please. But um, but I know that they they did speak to a, a textile expert, um, uh, and I'm going to pr pronounce the name very badly now. I expect Mathilde Fleury Lemberg, who said that the shroud cloth corresponds to fabric found in Basada, which dates from the, the first century. Um, you know the way that this cloth was stitched together was so so expertly done. The seam was so unusual; it had only been seen on textiles that were actually found in the first century in Masada, the Jewish fortress, which obviously was overthrown by the Romans in 73 AD and was never reoccupied. And I find that again just another <clears throat> compelling, shall we say, sort of piece of evidence that ties the shroud to a first century origin. And I was just wondering, Hugh, if if they, if you had any comment on that. Yes, it's a very common seam. You can find it illustrated as how to do seams on a number of internet websites. Uh, Mechthil Florilenberg didn't say that it was only found in Masada. The okay. diagram that appears in her book actually comes from Hero Granger Taylor's analysis of the textiles from Masada. And uh, when I spoke to Hero Granger Taylor, she said, yes, that indeed, that was one of the features um, that we found. Uh, but it wasn't meant to show that it was a unique stitch or, or anything uh, particular okay. like that. Um, uh, it, it, so, no, it, it doesn't pin it to a date. No, uh, so, so again, obviously it was, uh, it certainly corresponds, I think, to, to, to cloth found in Masada at that time. Your, your contention then is that it's been used in a much wider context since then. Is that is that I, right? Oh, yeah. I, I think if you've got a pair of jeans and look at it, you'll find a very similar... Uh, stitch just to hold the seams of your jeans together i've got a, I've, I've published something on the um on on, on, a, on a new theory uh, now i'm not saying that uh, i'm going to defend this but
but I'm just going to present it and say I think this is a possible answer to the shroud. So I've got a piece of paper here which I've folded like that. And I want you to imagine that I'm stitching it all the way along the front, yes. along the top, like this. Move it over to your uh, right. Yeah. Uh, so I can thread a, a pole or a wire. Oops, where am I going? Here we go. Thread a pole or a wire. I'm going to do it in front. Through mm -hmm. the hole that's been made all the way along the top there. And I can then hang my shroud from an altar. Now, when I don't want that anymore, what I do is I'm going to cut the top bit off, which I shall do before your very eyes, like this. Oops. So now I've just got the stitching, and then I'm going to fold this over twice and stitch the two bits down. And then when I then unfold it again, I'm going to get a seam which looks like, bear with me for just a second, which looks like that. And that is this sort of little kink in it, the seam that we get on the shroud. So I think it is. there are various ways in which the reasons why the side strip may have been attached so accurately to a 14-foot length of cloth. I have spoken to um, various seamstresses who've said that there's no possible way uh, in which by hand you can cut a piece of patterned curtain, strip off, and then sew it back on again so accurately. It's bound to get stretched or pulled or, um, uh, or, or changed. Okay. So the fact is I don't think that the side strip ever left the cloth. I think it was sewed onto it, and then it was that loop that was taken off. All However, right, so that's, just, that's just a hypothesis. I'm not going to mm. defend that. I'm just going to throw it out. Fair enough. So I want to, I want to turn to Bob. Do, do you have anything to say about the dust studies? Uh, do you think Hugh's right that we can rule out Jerusalem or like what, what's your take on the dust? I'd, I'd like to just investigate it further. Uh, I'd like to investigate the scientific methodologies. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, I bet you would. You're the only person who would understand that, Bob. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, whether the energy ranges on the two different experiments were, were identical or were they similar? I'd like to just look at the details. It's always worthwhile looking at the details. That, that, the devil's in the details. You remember the, oh, you isn't know, it just? Yeah, <laughs> yes. And, and so it's, you, know, you have to get into the details of it. I'd okay. Say. Okay, cool. Well, here, here's my challenge, and then we can move on to the what everyone's waiting for, the coins issue. But, um, Hugh, so I, I want to – there has been a peer-reviewed study of Caesar Barda, and this, I think – has linked, even if you dispute, well, can we prove it's Jerusalem or not? Uh, they have found using x-ray fluorescence that there is this connection between the tip of the nose on the shroud man, and the tip of the nose of the guy in the sudarium. So is this, what do you make of this study? Is, is, doesn't this link the two cloths? And the, no, the uh, there's, there's been no comparative study between the limestone on the shroud and the limestone on the sudarium because the, the sudarium studies and the, and the shroud studies were completely different. But it's mm -hmm. true that uh, Cesar Barta did come up with something. Um, I spoke with him possibly on one of your shows, was it? Uh, no, but I, I had him on my show where he made this. Yeah. Were, we on were we on together? No, because he doesn't speak English, so I I'm couldn't. Sure. Oh, right. Well, I, I, oh, perhaps I corresponded with him afterwards. But anyway, yeah. the, the composition of the limestone, again, 
how 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 typical he compared the limestone of Oviedo, the limestone of the Sudarium, and the limestone of Jerusalem, and he found that they basically formed a, a, a row of three different compositions. But uh, Oviedo and uh, Jerusalem were slightly close. Uh, no, uh, the shroud in Jerusalem were slightly closer together than Oviedo. And on that basis, we decided that the shroud was more likely to, to could, could validly be associated with Jerusalem. Um, but he was a bit nonplussed when I told him that the limestone of Valencia in southern Spain was even more similar to shroud limestone than the Jerusalem limestone was. So that flummoxed him for a bit. So no, his limestone doesn't match the, the, shroud, the Jerusalem limestone at all. It does match the, the Sudarium limestone, matches the limestone of southern Spain, which is where the Sudarium came from. Okay, so outside, in my opinion. Okay, so, but Caesar Barda. So my question: I, I don't care about geography at this point. I, I'm trying to say that he also has proven, according to him, when he was on the show, that the concentration of limestone dust at the tip of the nose of the shroud man is the same as the tip of the nose corresponding on the sudarium so that yeah. links the two cloths and if that's true we can i've got no i've got no evidence that any limestone has been taken from the tip of the nose of the shroud at all ever by anybody okay okay um Does anybody anybody else joe i mean you know this better than me there were no sticky tape samples taken by um by the Sturp team. Uh, if Fry took any samples, he certainly didn't let anybody know. Uh, there's there's no evidence there's any lime. Well, the only evidence that there's any limestone on the nose of anybody in the shroud is the spectrographic uh, evidence carried out um, in, during 1978. But that's not diagnostic of limestone. It was simply a, a general calcium uh, study which showed that there was calcium in roughly equal abundance all over the shroud. Okay. All right. Um, cool. Well, I'll, I'll link to the show with Caesar Barta so you can check out what he what he claimed there. Yeah. So. Yeah, we're doing that. Cool. So, all right. So let's move on now to the topic everyone's waiting for the issue <laughs> of the Pontius Pilate coins. Um, and are there Pontius Pilate coins over the top of the shroud man's eyes? Um, and I want to turn it since Joe, I, th I think, is the only one who's definitely pot making the positive affirmative case here that I know of. Joe, why don't you start us off? What what is the case for these Pontius Pilate coins, and how does that relate to the Shroud's historicity? All right. Well, I think I'll give a little history first, and that'll can set some groundwork for what everybody else says uh, to give everybody an idea that at least the listeners uh, of how it all started. So, uh, right before Sturp went to Turin in 1978, uh, three of the Sturp members actually wrote an article in the Numismatist uh, magazine um, in July of 78, and they went over in October of 78. So it was Jackson, Jumper, and Stevenson um, wrote an article uh, postulating that there might be coins on the eyes. And um, of course, the, it was, they didn't conclude that it was definitely there, but they, they put it out there to you know, hoping for uh, responses from people, the numismatists, uh, to see if if 
they possibly agreed with them. So it was, um, they were, the VP8 image uh, photos that they garnered is what gave them the idea that there might be coins on the eyes because they noticed over in the VP8 photos um, or the images that there seemed to be something three-dimensionally over the eyes. So they did first uh, consult, uh, look at Jewish burial customs, and they they found a, an old, a work by a Jewish scholar named A.P. Bender in the Jewish Quarterly Review, which I think it came out sometime in the 19th century. And they asserted, uh, and I think that's been contested since then, back and forth, that um, that it was customary for the Jews to place objects over the eyes. I don't know if customary might be too strong of a word. I think it was probably done based on the evidence I've seen. I don't think it was a universal custom, but it might have been more geographical than anything. Um, but that's this whole thing is tied in with not doing work on the Sabbath. Um, now, then they cited Wilson's book came out in 1978, uh, and Wilson postulated that it would be would have been okay to use a pun. Uh, a Pontius Pilate coin because it didn't have an image of Caesar on it. So that he was saying that just an image with Caesar would, would be the only coins that would have been strictly prohibited. Um, so based on that article, Father Francis Philet, Philus, who was a Jesuit priest and uh, who attended some of the early uh, Sturp meetings, he wasn't on Sturp, but he associated with them a lot. And Father Phyllis was uh, part of the Holy Shroud Guild in New York. Um, so Father Phyllis kind of took that idea and, and started looking into it. So in August of 1979, uh, he enlarged a photo of the shroud and brought it to a coin expert in Chicago named Michael Marks. And by November of that year, um, they both believed that they had detected uh, signs of a Pontius Pilate lepton, which was minted only between 29 and, and 32 AD. So right there, you, you kind of you see, everybody should be able to see that if you could prove that there was a Pontius Pilate lepton on the eyes of the man of the shroud, that's going to be an even a better dating indicator than than carbon dating which has you know caught you know maybe 100 150 year range whereas um you know presumably if you if you put a punches pilot coin on eyes of, of a corpse it's not long after that coin was minted okay um so the punches pilot lepton had something called the lydius which is like a shepherd's staff that was kind of the main uh, feature on the shroud, but one of the problems uh, there would have there was an inscription on the coin Tiberius Caesaros Tiberius Caesar in Greek, and um, the the image on the shroud they noticed that there was a C. They didn't see the full inscription. They saw what they believe were a few letters, and um, where the where there was a should have been a K, they were seeing the letter C. And then um, 
in the meantime, in 1981, there was, was a place uh, in Overland Park, Kansas, called Log E Interpretation Systems. They confirmed the 3D quality of the the eye images of what they were seeing over the eyes. So then, um, Father Phyllis kept on doing um, further research into the coins and actually found a few coins, actual uh, authentic Pontius Pilate coins that had a misspelled C instead of the K. And eventually, I, I want to say like six or seven were eventually found. Um, so I would, you know, to me, if that coin is not there, this has got to be one of the biggest coincidences of all time that, you know, they say, oh, you know, there should be a K there, but we got a C. And lo and behold, then they find half a dozen coins with a misspelled C. That seems to be a pretty big coincidence if it's not real. So then in 1982, um, F Father Phyllis went to Dr. Alan Wanger, who we've mentioned before um, with the botany discussion. And um, Dr. Wanger had come up with this thing called the polarized image overlay, where he, you know, overlaid images and to, to, to look for similarities. And Wanger claimed um, 74 points of congruence between the lepton and the right eye image. And that there was a, a lepton over the right eye. 1883, um, Robert Herlich of the Virginia Polytechnic Institute said, although the patterns in the right eye area of the shroud image have a large random component, the enhancement suggests there is a correspondence between them and those on a Pontius Pilate coin. Then in 1984, a coin expert named uh, Arden Brame Jr. wrote in a journal called The Augustan um, that he looked at the work of Phyllis Wanger and Herlick, and he says, quote, has, has established beyond a doubt that the coin that left the impression over the right eye is the Pontius Pilate Lydius Dilepton of type two. So there was one coin expert that agreed that there was a coin there. Um, and then Brame also claimed that Jews uh, would use pagan image shekels for um, religious purposes. Uh, in 1985, so this is like the fourth straight year of developments um, of, of things, there was an Italian coin expert named Mario Moroni, and he came on board and said he believed that there was the presence of a lepton. And then in, uh, then we jump about 10 years up, up to 1996, and Dr. Um, Baima Bologna, who was a medical, medical examiner, and Professor Nello Bellasino, he was a computer image uh, specialist. Um, they both were part of the uh, center in Turin. Um, they both claimed that they confirmed the presence of a lepton over the right eye. Um, and they compared, they said what they saw in the right eye matched perfectly to a, a coin in the collection of a, an Italian coin expert named Cesar Colombo. Then in uh, 2010, there was a French researcher named, named Max Patrick Heyman. 
uh, he presented a, a poster uh, at the Frascati conference in 2010 and said, starting from the first year, the two coins were struck by Pontius Pilate to his last year in office in the Roman province of Judea. The shroud image can be conclusively given the most probably average date span 29 to 36 AD. And of course, uh, the two dates given generally for the crucifixion of Jesus uh, are usually 30 or 33 AD, so that both of those dates fall in that range. In um, 2019, uh, there was um, a South African paleoanthropologist and professor named J.F. Thackeray, um, and he said that um, he believed that you wouldn't be able to to be able to discern the Lydius or the inscription, uh, but based on the comparative sizes between the shroud eye images and actual coins, this is a quote he, quote, he says, I do not conclude that this constitute proof that the circular object on the eye of the person represented in the shroud is in fact a lepton dated at three plus or minus one AD. The results do, however, support a hypothesis that the circular object is a lepton minted at approximately that time. Um, and then he, he mentions uh, Dr. Natowski, because um, she believed that uh, putting coins on the eyes was a Jewish uh, custom. Um, and there's been a couple other Jewish scholars uh, like Heck Lilly and Killebrew. Um, they wrote an article that that uh, they said they did find some coins uh, in the skull, and they kind of backtracked a little in a in an article a few years after that. Um, and there's another Jewish scholar named Romani that didn't believe that it was a custom. Now, um, various shroud experts, including Barry Schwartz, um, believe that that the weave of the cloth is such that you wouldn't be able to discern a description. Um, now, Barry and I agree on a lot. This is one area where we have a, a little uh, disagreement because my contention is if you have an object, since nobody knows how that image got on the shroud, um, if you've got an image that is unexplainable, I'm not sure you need to get too rational about the physics of being able to discern an description uh, or a Lydios. I mean, because from my point of view, since it hasn't been proven to be a fake, you have to put, you know, this makes pe some people uncomfortable, but you have to put the option of the shroud image being a miracle on the table um, because it hasn't been proven. And if that's the case, um, I think it's, it's possible that um, you know, God's showing his maybe his sense of humor and saying, "Okay, I'm going to put a Pontius Pilate coin on the on the shroud, let somebody find it, and see how humans go crazy over that." Um, so my biggest argument <clears throat> from a positive point of view is is to say the shroud's unexplained. We have some evidence, including from coin experts, that there's probably a lepton there. Uh, God could put a point, a coin there, even if we're not supposed to see it, and let us see it. Um, now, Eric Jumper of Sterp uh, 
ironically, who who was one of the co-authors of the first uh, of that first article that got Father Phyllis going on it, Jumper later actually believed that there wasn't a lepton on there, but he got the ball rolling and Phyllis, you know, uh, did his research and other people jumped on board. Um, so in effect, I think, you know, God could be having a little fun with us, giving us enough evidence, but not a, an actual knockdown proof that, that there's a Pontius Pilate coin there. Um, maybe even it's his way for those uh, uh, who believe the shroud to be, be authentic, to make up for what happened with the C-14. You know, maybe that's his little sense of humor. And I, you know, this may sound like special pleading, but I don't really think it's any... It's any more unreasonable than, um, you know, someone who doesn't believe the shroud's authentic and saying, well, I don't know how the image got on there, but I think we'll eventually find out. I think it's kind of on a parallel track that I could say, well, I think God is a lot, you know, if it's a miracle, God's a lot maybe may <clears throat> allowing it to be there. So um, I wouldn't say that there's, you know, proof positive that, uh, that that there's a coin there but i think the possibilities there and i'll leave it at mm. all right it's awesome well thanks so much for that joe um i want to turn it to bob next because i think he's kind of in the middle he's sort of a, an agnostic or neutral if i understand you so bob what what's your take on the, the pontius pilot coins argument oh yes uh, well as i've said before uh, what i started with was we shouldn't rule out the possibility of a Pontius Pilate coin being on the eyes uh, based upon the carbon dating to 1260 to 1390, because that has been invalidated uh, and that, that date is rejected, which, which means that we should give it no credibility at all. And so we move on from there and we have to consider uh, the coin on, on its own merits. Uh, and so then the second thing I'd like to discuss would be whether there's any mechanism to actually encode the image uh, of a coin on the cloth. And, and so I, I, after working on resolving the, or solving the carbon dating problem, uh, I then turned my attention to the image formation. Uh, and so I do have a, a proposed image formation mechanism. I call it the vertically collimated radiation burst hypothesis. Uh, and it, it involves uh, a burst of charged particles being emitted uh, along with the neutrons. Now, the neutrons don't have any effect on the image, but the charged particles are, are the causative agent, which causes uh, a static discharge from the fibers, top fibers that are facing the body, both on the front and the back images, so that there's a static discharge. Giulio Ponte prefers corona discharge. I think we're talking about the same thing, which is interesting, so that both myself and Giulio Fonti have come to the realization that, that the image was largely formed by a, a, a discharge uh, of electrons from the top fibers facing the body. Now, now it's interesting that Giulio uh, Fonti, I think, developed his theory from a top-down consideration that, that um, he had some indication of that and then set about to try and prove that it was consistent with all the evidence, whereas I took a bottom-up approach, whereas I started with the evidence and tried to follow the evidence where it led, and, and we come back to the same item, that 
that the discoloration uh, on the, the fibers w was due to a, uh, electron discharge, uh, like like little lightning bolts uh, going from a thundercloud down to a lightning rod, um, and, and so that, that that in my mind that that does explain how we could have the discoloration on the fibers uh, of uh, all the way uh, around the fiber of less than 0.2 micrometers uh, on a fiber linen fiber that was about 15 micrometers. So it's only a very small percent uh, of, of the radius uh, of the fiber that, that's discolored. And how, how do you explain that? You have to find some way to explain that. Uh, and my, my new idea here, I'm not sure if anyone else has recognized this, but there is a mechanism in physics to do that. Uh, and that is in an alternating current, the, the electrons go back and forth and in the process, they, they set up uh, uh, elect electric fields and magnetic fields that are oscillating. And that oscillation then causes the electrons to flow in the conductor near the outer circumference of the conductor. And that's exactly where in, in the fibers, the linen fibers, that we have the discoloration. So what I'm saying is that there was an alternating current in the fibers, which forced the electron flow to the uh, to the outer circumference of the fibers, which then deposited heat in the, that outer circumference, less than 0.2 microns or micrometers thick. Because as the electrons were flowing, they'd be bouncing against the atoms uh, in the fibers, thus causing heat. So that, that heat is essentially a scorch, though it's not due to uh, contact with a hot object. It's due to extremely localized electrical heating uh, and that explain, explains the discoloration both in the fibers uh, uh, on where the discoloration was on the fiber and it explains why it was only the top two or three fibers in a thread that were discolored so that if if that's the cause and i, I believe that's a good explanation that's consistent with all the evidence uh, so that uh, if we have an electrostatic discharge that, that's the word i use uh, be between uh, the, the cloth and the body, then that would be a cause uh, to see to or to encode to encode the uh, Im image uh, onto the uh, of the coin onto the cloth, so that the the lettering would either be a high point or a low point, uh, probably a high point on the coin so that the electrical discharge would be preferential from those high points of the lettering and, and the lattice uh, on the coin. So that I think that there is a mechanism by which the image of the coin could be encoded uh, onto the plot so that uh, we shouldn't uh, rule out the possibility of an image being encoded onto the plot because th there's no mechanism. I think that there is. So that therefore we should consider the, the evidence at hand on the possibility uh, of that being the case. Um, can you still can you still hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. So so that therefore um, we should consider the merits of it. Now, when when we're looking at the evidence for the coins on the cloth. 
it's often difficult for me and I think others as well to actually see the evidence. Uh, and yet many people who've taken very close looks uh, look at it that indicates that they they are convinced that it's there. Uh, I'm not totally convinced. You know, if, if we have to assign a probability that there was a, 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 a lepton minted between 29 and 32 AD on the cloth, I'd probably give it a probability of greater than 50%. So maybe we're up in the, the 60 to 70% probability range. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't say it's, it's absolutely uh, certain that it's there. Uh, just on the issue of dating, uh, it's not just carbon dating. That, that dates the cloth. I, I think we have somewhere around 18 or 19 date indicators uh, for the Shroud of Turin. The, the carbon dating is the most recent. All the other date indicators are contrary to the carbon dating. Uh, and then we have multiple dating techniques that are actually consistent with the first century, I think. So that we, we should not uh, rule out the possibility of, of coins being there based upon uh, a presumed uh, date for the shroud. So so that's about where I am. Probably 60 to 70% probability that uh, uh, the coin is there min minted in 29 to 32 AD. Okay, well, that so that's awesome then. That's new. So you, you're you not really an agnostic. You are on the pro, pro side. Uh, I, I think so. I think so. And yes, and, and I realize that there's been <clears throat> confusion over the issue more recently but uh, that, that more recent confusion, I, I don't think, does away with the photographic evidence uh, that uh, Thelos uh, came up with. So gotcha. I'm, I'm inclined to think there really was one. I, I'm a little bit hesitant. Uh, I wouldn't stake my life on it, but I think it probably was there. And I think it's just reasonable that it does seem like there was some type of round objects over the eyes. And what would they be? Uh, you know, would, would they be buttons or something? Uh, no, they'd probably be coins. So I, I think in all probability, there probably were coins. Uh, whether we can identify them uh, uh, as minted by Pontius Pilate uh, is another issue. And uh, so, so that's, where the, that's where I am on the issue. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, let's turn. We have a coin expert on the show. So, so why, don't we, why don't we ask him, uh, Justin, what, what's your take on the, the argument from the Pontius Pilot coins? I, I think it's it's a very interesting one. I, I actually had for my, uh, my birthday recently, I was actually given a Pontius Pilot coin. So I can actually, and they are absolutely tiny things. You probably not, the, the detail of them is not brilliant. Um, and probably never was. Uh, they, they would have been very sort of roughly struck. Um, my my one was actually struck in in 29 AD, and it has three ears of wheat on it. It's it's got that that sort of image. Um, but I I you know I, I mean having looked at this uh, in some detail, I'm kind of kind of I think maybe veering a little bit towards the Barry Schwartz's argument that that there they, there is. It's very possible that something was there. Whether or not we we can see enough to actually specifically identify them, I, you know, I've I've squinted at the uh, at the image on the shroud uh, over the eyes in in lots of different ways, and I, I I confess I cannot see the level of detail that that, that some people are, are suggesting for it. Um, 
but that said, um, there, there's some interesting sort of precedent. I mean, I, I do wonder as well if the if the shroud is is the genuine burial cloth of Christ, which I personally believe. Um, you've got to imagine then the Joseph around the fear who goes out and purchases this very expensive linen cloth um, uh, to, to actually lay the the body in, uh, then takes it upon himself to put two coins over the eyes that they may not have the image of Caesar on them, but they certainly have a have an inscription to, to Caesar. Uh, bearing in mind that Christ had just been brutally tortured and put to death by Romans, uh, that feels a little bit. Hmm, I'm not sure whether he would have, whether they would have, he would have necessarily wanted to have actually put some something that associated uh, so closely associated with with Roman with Pontius Pilate um, at that particular moment. Now that's just completely hypothetical. I, I can't say yes or no. I mean, it's um, you know, yes, I'm I'm quite prepared to to accept. It certainly looks like there may have been something over the eyes. Beyond that, I, I really can't speculate. I mean, one thing that, that was interesting, and it was mentioned earlier, um, I was thinking about a different coin, uh, which, which, which might say something about the, the state of mind that, uh, that self-respecting Jews had. Um, in order to actually, uh, the, the, the shekel of Tyre uh, was actually instituted as being the only way that, that, that a Jewish man could actually pay the temple tax. And the reason for that is the uh, the, the, the Jewish uh, religious leaders knew that the, the shekels that were actually struck at the Mint of Tyre were more pure uh, silver content than, than anything else. Uh, and so they, uh, for reasons purely, I think, uh, financial, uh, decided that, that Jews had to pay their, uh, their temple tax uh, with, with this particular shekel of Tyre. What was interesting is that the shekel of Tyre actually had a portrait of the Tyre god Melkart, son of Baal, on it. Uh, no self-respecting Jew uh, would have wanted to have carried uh, one of those coins around with them. And that's why um, you had these money changers being set up in the temple um, to come and, and, and take the money of, of the Jewish people wanting to come along and pay their temple tax. They had to exchange them uh, for for this particular tire shekel. And of course, there was a very lucrative industry um, sort of sprung up. They, they were obviously paying over the odds for that coin. Uh, and uh, and of course, that's when when Jesus walks into the temple. Of course, he 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 takes a whip and he drives the money changers out because he you know. And and I think that that's that's a really interesting telling point. Uh, and again, I I wonder, and, and I have no evidence in which to, to to necessarily back that up. But I I wonder whether somebody like Joseph Arimathea would have been carrying around in his pocket um, that particular coin. That actually, uh, that, that actually specifies, you know, a Caesar, um, and whether he would have wanted to have put that over the eyes of his, his dead friend uh, and master, um, bearing in mind, of course, that Christ had had experience of having a coin given to him, and he, and he when he, when he was asked, should we pay our taxes to Rome, and he said, well, whose face is on this? And they said, Caesar. He said, well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. So. Uh, I, I struggle a little bit with the identification. I'm, I'm, I'm prepared to accept that there may have been something over the eyes. Uh, whether we can actually say with any degree of certainty that it was it was a, a Pontius Pilate coin, I'm, I'm not sure. Awesome. Let, uh, just one quick follow-up before I give it to Hugh for his take. I'm just sort of curious about, for me, one of the most intriguing aspects is the fact that there's this, what people are claiming there's a spelling error, right? The C instead of the K. 
um if if you go for like barry's explanation like what where did that come from like what how would they have known in advance like why are they seeing this spelling mistake that happens to correspond to the, to the point it's like what's your take on that well uh, only that they were uh, as a very roughly produced um you know this was not you know, when we think of coin production today we think of a very slick operation in which you know sort of millions of coins are produced and they're all absolutely identical uh, that obviously was not the case in the, in the middle ages uh dyes would be changed very quickly um and as a result you know, they would that the image would be crudely sort of carved into the die uh, and then used to strike a, a number of coins it, it's perfectly plausible, uh, you know, and I've got no issues there at all that, yes, of course, you know, letters could be spelt the wrong way in the haste to get them to get these dyes produced. Um, you know, I again, it, it's whether or not we can see that level of detail um, on the shroud image. Um, you know, personally, I, I can't. I'm quite happy to defer to people that say that they can and, and, and by all means, you know, it would be wonderful if if we could establish beyond doubt, because again, that would be another corroboration uh, that, that that demonstrates the that the shroud is genuine. You know, I, I personally believe the shroud is genuine anyway, um, but I'm uh, I, I'm not absolutely convinced that uh, that what we're seeing there is we can conclusively say yes, this is specifically that coin. Perfect. Uh, so, Hugh, over to you to give what's your take on the Pontius Pilate coins. Are you going to be announcing um, that you are a believer now? I, I will. No, I'll, I'll share the screen in a minute. Um, okay. Just, just for the for the benefit, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm sure um, Just will back me up on this. Um, this this is a Greek inscription. People spoke Greek, and Tiberius um, Caesar in Greek looks like that. But of course, some people spoke Latin, and had they written Tiberius Caesar in Latin, it would have looked like this. More or less, there'd probably been an E there. Would you agree with that, Justin? I don't know. But yeah, no. the point is that if you weren't, if you, if you were, supposing you, you regularly spoke Latin at home for one reason or another, but you were a coin minter, and you wanted to put Caesar, and you wanted to write Tiberius Caesar in, in Greek, it would be quite a common mistake to accidentally put the Roman C instead of the Greek K. So I, I don't find that a, a, a surprising uh, a mis mistake at all. It's the sort of thing, as you said, as Justin agreed, as I said, it's the sort of thing somebody might well do. Is that yeah, I, I, I think that um, certainly having a, a spelling, a difference of spelling on, 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 a, on a coin like that is, wouldn't necessarily be a, a, a strange thing. Uh, as I said, they, they would have been rushed out very quickly. The dyes would have been used for a very short period of time before they became corrupted and had to be re. So, so while whilst the coin, well, you you would have had one chap who had been striking the coin. There would be another chap probably busily engraving the next die, ready to use the ready to use for the next batch. Uh, and and so you know, yes, of course, you know, you, you errors yeah. could definitely creep into that. With, with very because it's Latin, one Latin in his, so Latin in his Greek muddles. That would be that would be not too surprising. <laughs> What one thing, oh, um, Hugh, Hugh, just yeah. before you get into it, I just wanted to clarify very like what's what the pro shroud side, the pro Pontius Pilate side is saying. It's not surprising that there's a spelling mistake on the coin, 
per se. It's it's the fact that well, if if we're seeing people seeing the, this coin on the shroud, are just you know seeing what they want to see or para, paradoia or whatever it is. Why are they just coincidentally seeing this coin with that corresponds with the spelling mistake? That's what I was trying to say is this surprising aspect kind of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hugh, here's your case. Go, go ahead and give okay. your. Okay. Well, I just want to pursue that, and that is that, as you can see, the Greek end of Tiberius, Tiberio, and the beginning of Kaiseros should be look, look like a Y K A I. Now, curiously. Uh, Philas and all the people who were talking about their discovery never mention that on the shroud they appear to see that the Y has been turned into a U. Uh, they all look for U, C, K, I. And everyone concentrates on the K and the C, which is an understandable, um, an understandable uh, confusion. But actually, this is also an understandable confusion, but nobody mentions it. And what's more, I have never seen of the what 3040 pruta that i've looked at that the y has ever been mistranslated as a u but it's always a u that appears uh, apparently on the shroud there's one other thing that i would just i mean i'm i i forget to defer completely to justin here and that is that when people talk about this coin as a lepton i immediately get slightly worried uh, about whether they are coin experts or not <laughs> pruta. it's not a lepton it's either a dilepton. A lepton was much smaller than than a pruta. It's either a dilepton, which would be the Greek word, or a pruta. Now, I'm not a shroud expert. I'm not a coin. I am a shroud expert. I'm not a coin expert, but I think I'm right on that. So that if someone says I'm a coin expert and I spot leptons on the shroud, I immediately worry, have you really looked into it as closely as you think you have? Anyway, what do you think? I'm just throwing that at you, Justin. What would you say? Do you think yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I have heard the two names used quite interchangeably, I have to say. Um, you know, the lepton and the pruta. And the dilemma. You know, it's, uh, that's right. I, I mean, it's, uh, it's something that, and I, and I must confess as well to not being an absolute expert in, in certainly in, in ancient coins. I have a, a fascination in coins across the board, but certainly uh, it, it's not necessarily my field of expertise. Um, I have heard them referred to as, as, as a lepton. I've, I've also heard them referred to as a pruta. Um, you know, this is the coin that, uh, uh, that that could have been referred to as uh, I know widows might of course that's the that these are the very low denominational coins uh, the lowest of the low the the, the, the smallest that you could have um, so so certainly I, I I've not made a uh, you know I, I've heard them both used interchangeably to describe th this particular coin yeah well fair enough yeah I as I say I'm not a coin expert as such All right can you see my screen mm-hmm yeah we can yeah okay so over on the left there here we have francis philas's fairly seminal uh, uh one of his many seminal pictures we can see uh his uh one of his pruta we can see that he's got the lituus that's the sort of curly thing we can see the letters u c a i written in red biro on a piece of paper and if we follow across to the towards the right hand side we can sort of see the half the stroke of the u and perhaps a very faint one a bold back of the c two bits of the a which don't quite meet and then a blob which we will interpret as an i and if we distort and you can see the 
um, contrast has been massively distorted here. We might call that a UCAI and go for the um, uh, and go for the fact that we think we've spotted a coin. However, you'll also see that the litus is in this case vertical. Now, um, in every single instance, I have never seen an example in which the UCAI, the CAI, the Caesar bit, ever started on the uh, right-hand side, the left-hand side of the litus. It has to be, the litus must be horizontal as, as depicted on my coin, which I've drawn in the middle there. Now, that being so, anybody who thinks they can identify a vertical litus on the right-hand side, on the left-hand side picture, is mistaking uh, a quite clear and fairly obvious um, weaving defect in the shroud for something that's on the coin. So if I move along to picture picture two, if you like, which is the um, the uh, Henry 1933 negative, 33, I think so, negative, which is what started all this. You can see the, the, the red circle roughly uh, shows where the uh, coin is. That green line down the middle shows the spine of um, some of the, uh, of the of the fish bone, uh, the herring bone thing. And you can just see up in the top left-hand corner of that circle, as it were, you can see where what the, the U, the C, the A and the I actually look like on the photograph before it's been um, uh, over-contrasted so much to try and pull those letters out. And what we can see is that this photograph is actually entirely made of small horizontal lines, uh, some small horizontal white lines uh, arranged in chevrons. And we might ask ourselves what those small horizontal white lines are. And if we move to picture three, the next one along, we can perhaps see that what they are, they are in fact shadows. They're not marks on the shroud. All those small horizontal lines are mostly shadows. And we can see in picture three what they are um, on, the, uh, uh, on the shroud itself. And we can still see that some of the shadows are a bit blockier than others up in the top right-hand corner. And the little diagram uh, number four with the white and the blue lines, that's one of the Mark Evans's photographs of the shroud. And it shows rather well how the dark shadows forming the creases where one thread goes over another, when you turn them into a negative, they turn into a series of diagonal horizontal lines. So these letters are made up of diagonal horizontal lines, which are mostly shadows. And that's what makes them able to be distinguished. In fact, the mark is of the coin is not on the surface of the shroud, it's in the shadow underneath the shroud, which I think is impossible. And the two pictures on the bottom show exactly the same place after <laughs> decades of careful research. Um, on, the, uh, on the shroud, as we see it in the uh, Halter Definizioni um, Shroud point 2.0 close-up. And again, if you look on the, uh, the darker version, the left-hand side, you can just about see where the two lines of uh, shadows come together, forming the A, and the I would be the line of shadows next to it. And the, 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 uh, the, the lighter one, the picture number one, two, three, four, five, picture number six, uh, shows what it actually looks like on the shroud at the moment. And to my mind, that's pretty clear evidence 
that what we're looking at is distortions in the weave and not marked made by any kind of coin. And uh, as for whether coins are ever found uh, or, or were ever put on the eyes um, of dead bodies in uh, Second Temple period Judea, um, Joe mentioned Bender, I think, who I looked up and who is clearly talking about modern Jewish burials. I mean, modern for the 19th century. He's comparing burial rites with various uh, various customs that there are. And he says the Jews use coins or potsherds or I don't know, something else um, to, 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 to put on the eyes of the dead. Well, they may have done in his time, but uh, Rachel Hakili, the expert on uh, excavating Jewish tombs, uh, is convinced that there was no such custom, that it's most unlikely that anybody would put any coins on the eyes um, because it simply wasn't done. What was done occasionally was to put coins, and this is the Greek influence, in the mouths um, of uh, people, uh, which therefore uh, would, would, would be to pay the ferryman care on. But certainly would not be a popular thing amongst Jews. Um, coins indeed have been found in Jewish tombs, mostly scattered on the floor, which may have been just dropped as offerings of one kind or another. And a very few coins have been found in ossuaries, but never in an intact skull. The trouble with ossuaries is that the, the skulls tend to fall to pieces. So if you find a uh, the bowl of a skull and it's got a coin in it, you can't really tell where that coin came from. Um, so she very sensibly is convinced that there was no such such custom or practice or right putting any coins on the um, on the eyes of people. Somebody mentioned that, of course, in uh, in Victorian times in Britain, I dare say in America, people occasionally put pennies on the eyes of dead bodies to try and keep them shut. Because if a person had died with his eyes open, um, they looked a bit gruesome. And so funeral directors would try and close the eyes. But a lepton is far too small to have any effect whatever on uh, on closing the, uh, keeping the eyes of a dead person whose eyes were originally open shut. Nowadays, I've looked into um, undertakers. You can buy the most grotesque little things which look like contact lenses with, um, with spikes on them. And as you fold the eyelid over, the spikes hold it in place. Hmm. So um, anybody who's interested in... Uh, how to be an undertaker have, have a look at that and uh yeah that's uh that's my take on the coins and i have to say barry's seen this and uh he agrees with me all right awesome. one of the very rare occasions in which barry agrees with me i may say <laughs> all, right. all right so i'm gonna open it up and i see bob's ready to go so yeah over to you bob to start us off yeah i, I would just make a comment about uh, referring to uh, jewish practices uh, from Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus and his disciples were not from Jerusalem. They were from Galilee. Uh, and it's interesting, they were from Galilee. So you'd have to and not compare the customs in Jerusalem, but you have to compare it with the customs in Galilee. No, but we think uh, that Jesus was married by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Arimathea is possibly just a uh, north eastern suburb of Jerusalem, and Nicodemus almost certainly came from Jerusalem. Uh, and There's John, no any other disciples there? And the apostle John was there, and he would have had so. priority in doing the burial. He would have been in front 
I think he would have been in front, not Nicodemus or Joseph of Matthea, Arimathea, uh, in the <coughs> doing the burial. So that, uh, for example, in the Bible, you actually have two Passover services, one prior day and one the after day. The prior day was being done by Jesus and his apostles because they were from Galilee, uh, whereas the subsequent day, the Passover, uh, was being done by the Jews in Jerusalem. There were two different Passovers. Because there's different customs. Yeah, I don't, I don't think... It, uh, I'd have to go and check out. But I don't think there was any Jewish custom of putting coins on the eyes of dead people, even in Galilee. I think you'd have to demonstrate that there was such a, such uh, a I think you'd have to demonstrate that there wasn't. Be very, oh, very, well... Very easy yeah, no. thing to do. Very easy thing to do. I mean, we shouldn't disallow it because we can't find evidence uh, that it did happen. Uh, do we find any evidence that it didn't happen? You know, you can go either way. Well, yes, but as you know, proving a negative is always yeah. quite a difficult thing to do. Yeah, well, well, that's what you'd have to do, though. You'd have to prove well, a negative. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, okay. I don't... I, Bob, I don't think there's anything in the Bible that says that John was present at the burial. I, I think that it was it was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They're, they're the two that are referred to specifically. I think I, I don't think there's any evidence that uh, that John was actually there while the body was being sort of put into the linen cloth and put into the tomb. I, um, I, don't, I don't think we have evidence that anyone was there. Okay, so we but someone that definitely was. The three men that were at the foot of the cross were Nicodemus, Joseph, Arimathea, and, and the Apostle John. And so that those three, you need at least three men to, to get the body uh, to the tomb. So it would be those three who went into the tomb carrying the body, and jo uh, the Apostle John would have priority in doing the burial. Yeah, we, we don't. I mean, I, I can only say I'm just looking at the, the verses from, from Scripture now, and I, I can see uh, obviously John refers to. Nicodemus uh, and also to to Joseph. He, he certainly doesn't say that he was there or that that anybody else was there. Yeah, you're, you're I right. mean, it's uh, Jesus essentially gave his his mother to the care of the Apostle John because yes. the Apostle John was at the foot of the cross. Correct. Yes. Okay, so he was he was there. He was there at the crucifixion. I'm not going to doubt that at all. No, absolutely, according to the, the scripture. But uh, I think specifically what he was referring to then was was just uh, that that it was Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea who were the two individuals who were who were who were stated as being the two that were actually responsible for for taking the body and putting it into the tomb, and uh, uh, that, that that there there isn't a, a, a reference to there being any other disciple a disciple there. Yeah. We have no reference at all as to who was in the tomb doing the burial. Yet there had to be someone. Okay? Well, we, the there are two. I mean, we, we know that there were two. two, and two. There, there were three men that were there. Nicodemus, Joseph, and the Apostle John. It's only reasonable that the Apostle John would have, would have had the priority in doing the burial. Now, now yeah, the, the, uh, the special uh, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had uh, particular functions prior to the burial, and, and those are noted in Scripture. But John was I think it's there. An, I think it's an interpretation, but I don't think it's it's necessarily justified. And I, I do think that it, it 
it um it's it sums up a, a very common attitude which we found a couple of times even today and that is that if it's not positively disproved then therefore it's really quite likely which is not um a scientific way of going about things so there's uh, john was off looking after mary i suppose that's what i would think john was doing okay well think you make you make your supposition and i'll make involved in the burial at all <laughs> oh yes of yeah. course, of course. Uh, joy i wanted to make sure i want to make sure you get the it apostle, the apostle john uh had the status uh far more so than nicodemus or joseph of arimathea uh to control the burial Joe, uh, Joe, yeah, Joe, what's your take? Because obviously you've mm -hmm. you've listed a bunch of papers talking about this issue of, you know, first century Jewish practice, and the coins. So do you have anything to say on this? Or? Uh, um, you know, there there's just evidence on both sides and there's, you know, there's speculation on both sides. I think it's hard to pin down. Um, but I would, I would also make the point that um, something that could be very prevalent we could have very little evidence for. And the example I think of is there were thousands of crucifixions, but yet we only have evidence of a few of those. But we're not gonna we're not gonna say because of that, well, we're we're gonna doubt that there were thousands of crucifixions because we know from the literature that there were, but we just don't have a lot of archaeological evidence pertaining to it. So there may be customs that were very prevalent that just are lost to history and the, the coins on the eyes you you, you find people on both sides and um, you know there is some interpretation and speculation involved yeah i don't think there's any evidence against it i think we have to maintain the possibility that it was there and I, i've seen estimates that there were sixty thousand people crucified yes i wouldn't be surprised there were certainly lots of the revolt just amazing uh, yeah, Bob, Bob. Out of curiosity, what did you make of uh, Hughes' argument trying to say, like, I think he can. He says he can show that it's not the that it's part of the weed. It's not a coin on the eyes or something like that. Uh, I give that a thirty percent probability of being true. <laughs> the math works. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I might ask Bob, Bob and I were part of a small group that, what was it, Bob, a year or two ago, we were talking with some guy from was from Europe or something that was doing a new imaging technique. And we were trying to examine this, uh, the imaging on the coins and stuff. And the guy sort of promised he'd do this and that. And, and he kind of never followed up. And we've just, we just kind of lost track of him. Um, do you remember the technique he was trying to use for that? Oh, they were very advanced techniques. He was working at a national laboratory. But unfortunately, I, I don't think he's done anything on that. He was just very busy. You know, like I was when I was working uh, in, in the nuclear field, I was so busy doing other things. I had no time uh, to do other things uh, until I was out of the nuclear industry. Then I had time. So you, have someone, when you, you have to live when you're not working. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, we're all. Uh, I think if someone had sufficiently um, uh, advanced, probably intelligent uh, AI <clears throat> AI imaging techniques, what they would do is you see where where I showed all those little horizontal bars 
is to find a, an area of the shroud um, which definitely had no image on it and look at the intensity of those horizontal bars and then subtract each little horizontal bar until the area where there was no image goes completely blank. And then the area where there is image will only reflect the bits which are, as it were, brighter than they ought to be. Mm. Uh, and and that, I think that was the sort of thing he was working on, as far as I can see. But and the shroud is so irregular that it's very difficult to do um, automatically. And it's t impossible to do by hand because there's too many of them. So we'll have to wait till some smart, intelligent comes along and can do it all for us. All right. Yes, I, think this is a, I think it's a very difficult area scientifically because you're working with photographs that might be a fraction of a millimeter out of focus. And and so uh, if you can't see the the coins on, uh, you know, re refined analysis of more recent photographs, that doesn't disprove that you can see it on previous photographs. Uh, you could have lighting from one direction or another direction uh, that would be affecting where the shades are, where the shadows are. And that could be affecting whether you can see the image or not. So I, I think that with all of those uncertainties, if there's anything that actually shows a degree of uh, evidence for an image, I think that's probably the, the um, item that's most likely to be the case because there's so many ways that you can get it wrong where you wouldn't see the image even though there's a coin there okay, okay. But that's what i would think awesome all right so just to throw it open to the panel is there anything else on the pontius pilot coins issues that you guys want to discuss that we haven't talked about or you guys happy justin no, I, I think, uh, you know, I think, uh, as I said, it's it's one of those enigmas. It's like everything else with the Shroud of Turin, isn't it? It's uh, <laughs> it's mystery after mystery after mystery, uh, and we're we're still sort of scratching the surface. And and I think that uh, I, I liked very much what Joe had to say about it, uh, and that is that it, it could be that it could absolutely be there. Uh, and and if you if you believe as I do that the Shroud is uh, absolutely of miraculous origin, in a way everything almost becomes a distraction when you look at the sent the image and, and uh, of this crucified man that that miraculously has found its way onto the most studied object on planet earth and the shroud has been poked and prodded and and, and studied more than anything else in the world we still we still cannot replicate that image with 21st century technologies uh, we are still at the at the very beginning of trying to understand how that image was formed some kind of a scorch some kind of burst of energy emanating from within the body we're, we're still very much there this for me is is the central heart of the whole thing everything else almost to an extent feels like a distraction um you, you know this it is how that image came about and i think one of the for me personally um, looking at the Shroud today, I, I think one of the greatest injustices that has been done to the Shroud, the reason why it is not being talked about everywhere and by everyone, it, it is the Carbon-14 test result. That 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 still uh, is, it, you know, still has to be sh demonstrated as a, a, a was a ghastly injustice that was done. And I think the more we learn through the Freedom of Information Act, uh, the more I'm 
hoping and badgering the British Museum to actually come back and accept the fact that this 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 result was flawed. Um, you know, all of the work that's been done by you, Joe, and and by you know everybody to 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 demonstrate the uh, this this problem at the heart of it. You know, I think that this is the central focus for it. My little contribution to that is simply to, to hold up a coin and say, "Hey, doesn't that look like the image and the face on the shroud of Turin?" And people can actually make of that what they like, and they can look at that and go, "No, it doesn't," or they can look and go, "Actually, yeah, it does." And um, you know, but I think that the uh, that the story, the mystery of the shroud, the great, as I said, it is the gift that keeps on giving, because uh, I find this these sort of discussions absolutely fascinating, and I've learned a lot today. So I really do appreciate everybody for that. For that, it's been it's been really interesting. Cool, uh, Bob, you, you want to respond yeah. to that? Yeah, yeah. My my reasoning here on the nature of the shroud turn, and, and I agree that the the bottom line uh, question mystery. Uh, is this the shroud of, of Jesus, and could it possibly be related in some way to the uh, report of his resurrection that was believed in early Christianity? Uh, and so I, I don't like to talk in terms of miracles. I like to try and keep my science hat on. If, if people are ask me you know, about issues related to that, I take my science hat off and put my Bible believer's hat on. But if we just talk in terms of uh, a science, then, then I, I think in order to explain the carbon dating, uh, I'm forced to believe that, that you have to be able to explain the average date, the slope on the data, the uh, all 12 values as, uh, from the 12 subsamples from the shroud, as well as the dating of the sudarium to 700 AD. Uh, and that's uh, that can only the only explanation that I've encountered is my explanation of a burst of neutrons from the body. It explains all four of those. Uh, and that uh, then I expanded that into my concept of image formation, which is not neutrons, but it's uh, charged particles, such as protons. So that uh, we, I think we have two criteria to determine who this was. One, uh, this is a crucified man who was crucified exactly as Jesus is reported to have been crucified in the New Testament. And there was a burst of radiation from his body to form the image and shoot the carbon date. And when you put those two together, you can switch all you want to in all the documentation uh, that, that we have in, in, in historical documents. And the only person is Jesus and his resurrection that can satisfy those two criteria. So yes, I, I believe that just in science alone, you can prove that this is Jesus in his resurrection. And then if you want to call that a miracle, so be it. But I'm not going into the miracle range. I'm, I'm saying this is, uh, this is just science. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, I want to spend the next, the last 15 minutes or so uh, giving Justin a chance because obviously his main expertise, again, is in coins, but he specifically uses these bronze coins. So I wanted to give you a chance to give kind of a, a quick case and then have the other panelists kind of give their take on that. Um, did you want to take, you know, some some time to give your case uh, based on the bronze coin specifically or? Yeah. Okay, well, thank you. Well, uh, I mean, it, it's it's annoying that I don't have a presentation that I can sort of click to. I, I have this, which I, again, if I hold it up, I, I'm not sure how much of it you're going to be able to see. Um, but these are, the, these are the, the faces that appear on my on my coins uh, next to an image of the Shroud of Turin. If I sort of hold that there, 
hopefully you can see that a little bit clearly. I, I, I mean, the the idea, as I said, that, that there is so much that can be um, that, that that has been said, and, and certainly I know that there have been some very in-depth studies, both on the gold coinage, but increasingly now as well on, on, on some of the other coins as well. Uh, I, I think that, uh, that for me, I think what, what, what I find the most compelling of all is that the, um, you, have to, you have to imagine the situation where you have a coin engraver barely 20 years after this, this image of Edessa has arrived in Constantinople. Uh, the emperor now wishes to actually put the image of Christ on his coinage. I think this is a very powerful statement that he wants to send out across the Byzantine Empire, that he is the custodian of this image not made by human hands. Um, I think it is it is quite clear to me that uh, that, that a coin engraver, or, or certainly the first engravers, were entrusted with the, the privilege of actually going in and actually seeing this image close up. Um, I think that, uh, that and, and I think this one particular uh, engraver, uh, and I'm not saying that they weren't others, because again, was, these were mass-produced coins, uh, dyes would have been, they would have been going through dyes very quickly. Um, other engravers perhaps took a different view and, and attempted to create a more realistic, sort of life lifelike sort of figure of Christ. But this particular engraver copied the lines that he saw uh, on, this, on this cloth. Um, and I think that for him to do that in, in, in just one centimetre diameter, it, it was an extraordinary um, capability. The reason why I, I say that is simply because of the, of, of the amount of uh, points uh, there. And I, if, I, if I could just very sort of quickly sort of talk through them with you. Uh, this is a bronze follis that was struck in 969 AD. Um, what can we see on the shroud that, that replicates? Well, we can see a long horizontal band above the eyes, uh, that the nose uh, and, the, and the eyebrows uh, create a cross shape, which we actually see on the, on the Shroud of Turin. We, we see that on this, on this Byzantine coin. Um, we also see um, large round eyes that appear to be closed. Now, again, uh, you know, this is, this is extraordinary. Uh, you know, why are, why are we seeing an image on, on, of Christ uh, on a coin uh, with, with, with its eyes closed? Um, you know, if we were, if you know, this, if, if this was an image of Christ that was just being plucked out of the ether uh, and used as a generic image, what, why not have the eyes open? But, but the eyes are very clearly closed. Um, we, we also see uh, things, small details like a, a small square underneath the moustache. Uh, we see that the, the beard is forked. Uh, we see evidence of injury to the cheek, um, suggesting some sort of wound there as well. Um, you know, that there are so many different um, sort of things that we can look at there. Uh, we can also see two distinct strands of hair running in parallel on the left-hand side of the pop. Again, it shows up as the right on the coin, but if you flip the image to see what the engraver actually engraved, then you see them, as they say, on the left-hand side. Um, we also see, uh, I have a second coin as well, which was struck about 50 years later in 1028 AD, and again, we see very sort of similar sort of evidences of that. Um, what we see, for example, on the image, we see, again, eyes that appear to be closed. Um, we see hair that is grouped uh, on the left-hand side, of the, on the shoulders. Um, you know, we, we can see a, a moustache that appears to be longer on one side and drooping down on one side. 
and we also have this this band, this sort of historical, this sort of uh, horizontal band across the throat, which which you see very clearly on the shroud, uh, replicated again uh, on the coin uh, circa 1028 AD. Um, you know, and uh, and as well as that, there is also some sort of evidence as well uh, of an inverted three shape in the middle of the forehead. Again, it, it, it's incorporated into the hairline, but, uh, but but of course that corresponds with what we know there is a bloodstone. Okay, so the shroud. So, so these are these are all things that I would suggest uh, cannot be coincidence. They cannot be just you know. This is evidence that that that, that the image of the shroud was being studied and examined uh, and carefully copied uh, in the tenth century. Um, you know, which which again would blow the carbon fourteen testing out of the water. Uh, would demonstrate that that has to be discredited. Uh, and uh, and I think, as I said, for me. This is a, a very sort of exciting field of study, and I know that the others have, have gone and, and produced far more comprehensive reports than I. Um, but I think this is a this is a fascinating area of study, which I'm very pleased to be a part of. Awesome. All right. So at this point, I'll just let each of, each of the panelists, if if you want, uh, do you, does any of you guys have any questions or comments related to Justin's work on the bronze coin specifically that you want to share? Or? Yeah, I wanted wanted to ask um, Justin if if he has read uh, Julio's Julio Fonte's book on it, and Dale, you might want to put a, a link to it. I warning, fair warning, the book is very expensive. <laughs> it's very expensive. <laughs> now, I, I've read I've read his first book. I've got I've got his first book. I I haven't read the one that he specifically bought out on on coinage. So that's uh, that's on my list of. Mm -hmm. on my buy list so, uh, so uh so yes most definitely i'd like to look at that so i have a question so bob uh, just before i go to you um just a quick question this is for julio fonte because uh, uh this is what uh, he asked me to ask you about um his show and his take on your work so i don't know if you had a chance to see what he said there but did you have any feedback for for fanti based on his take of your work or Sorry, Dale, are you referring that to me? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yes. No. Uh, well, it, indeed. I, and I was, I was very pleased to hear him say that uh, that he agreed with me that the uh, uh, that, that that particular coin um, was had definitely. I think that my my suggestion that the the, the artist actually copied the lines that actually appear on the shroud. Um, you know, he was he was quite happy to agree with that, which was which was very pleased to hear it. As I said, I, I will defer to, to him. He has done he's he's looked at the gold coinage as well as the bronze coinage in, in considerably more detail than I have. Um, so uh, so as I said, it, it's something that uh, you know. But I was very pleased to hear him agree with my with my contention. That was good. Awesome, uh, Bob. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, I have a, a bronze. Byzantine coin uh, from uh, 1292 to 1295. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sorry, I think it was 1192 to 1195. Uh, okay. On, on the front, it, it's obvious to me that that's the face on the shroud of Turin. Uh, but on the back side, I believe it's Greek letters that say Jesus Christ, King of Kings. Yes. Thus, thus I, are you familiar with a coin like that? Uh, absolutely yes. Uh, I mean, I, I can't. Um, again, I wouldn't be. I can, I can send you a link to show you that. But that that's written on the back of my coin as well, back in 969. Um, so I know that uh, that that's that's what they say. Oh, that, thank you. Hugh's holding one up. Get the light on it. I think you can just about see. Yeah. 
Uh, and I have to say the one the one that I showed you earlier. If I if I just take it out of its, uh, uh, again, you can see it. Actually, I'm you holding can see it the, the right S way around. Jesus and the X of Christos at the yes. top. There we go. Yes, Jesus Christ, yeah. King of Kings. That's that's right. That was that was that was pretty standard. That 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 was standard on many of the so-called anonymous Byzantine followers. Yes, I think it's amazing that the emperor in the Byzantine Empire would take his image off the coin and put the face from the Shroud of Turin onto the coin. Uh, but I'm wondering about the, the backside, the obverse side. Uh, uh, did the emperor move his image to the backside of the coin? No, no, they're called anonymous follies is precisely for that reason, because the emperor's image did not appear on them. Uh, they used the image of Christ on the obverse and on the back. There was usually an inscription, something, as, as I said, along those lines of uh, Jesus Christ, King of Kings. So it was... Um, it, it that wasn't uh, that's and as I said for that reason, as I said, that's why they they're referred to as the anonymous follies because they uh, they didn't actually have anything to to identify the emperor at that time. So, on them. so did they start at, at a certain year then? And prior to that, the emperor had his image on the backside. Yeah. Uh, uh, so 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 the the anonymous the, the anonymous follies is were about a hundred and I think it was about one hundred and sixty years altogether. So they began with uh, Emperor John Zimiscus in, in nine hundred and sixty nine A.D. Um, and they uh, I think I think the the tradition of depicting Christ on the bronze circulating coins of the Byzantine Empire lasted for about one hundred and twenty odd years. Um, so uh, because they at that time they didn't carry details of the emperors who struck them. So, uh, so that was. Uh, so prior to that, though, the emperor did have his picture on the back of the coin. Yes. So, so before before that, then obviously the emperor, the emperors would be there. Um, the the very first uh, Byzantine emperor to to actually depict Christ on the coin was the gold, uh, the gold solidus that that uh, Justinian II produced, um, and uh, and he produced um, two. He had he reigned actually twice. He was deposed. Uh, midway, well, after his first reign, uh, and they they cut his nose off, and then he came back um, a few years later um, and, and and had a second reign. Uh, coins that were actually produced in the first reign also depicted Christ very much with the beard and, and the long nose and the owl-like eyes and the uh, you know so that very much the the depiction that we've we've come to to recognise on the Shroud of Turin. Well, that's interesting that 969 starts the period. That's only about 25 years after the image of Edessa gets to Constantinople in 944. Yes, and I think that this is part of, you know, you know, bragging, you know, sort of saying, look what we've got. Um, you know, this was a coin that was going to go out throughout the Byzantine Empire. Uh, I think there was very much of a, a case of, you know, the emperor demonstrating, if you like, you know, isn't this great? You know, this is what we have in, you know, and and I, you know, and this is again why I believe that the coin designer took such great care to replicate the the, the image that he saw, this holy image, not made by human hands, as carefully as he could. Um, you know, and as I said, that really comes out when you when you actually flip the coin over and you look at what the engraver would have actually engraved onto the die. Um, you know, the, the the similarities between what we see on the on the shroud of Turin today. Uh, and what he is uh, he, he is engraved onto a little one centimeter diameter <laughs> circle is is extraordinary i, I think cool hugh uh, did you have any questions or comments related to justin's research on the bronze coins 
well, just just questions, really. Yes, hmm. um, I, I'm I'm interested in the design of the coin apart from the face. Mm -hmm. So it, uh, nearly all of them show uh, Jesus holding a book uh, with dots on it um, in 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 his in his what left hand, um, and they often show his hand. Some of them show his hand. Um, as it were, in line with the body, and some of them show it yes. moved out, and they all show um, a, a circular nimbus with with uh, with bars. Now, where do you think that part of the image came from? Yeah, I I think I mean incidentally, the the, the one that I'm referring to now doesn't have that. Well, no, it's much no, more of a straight face. But but yeah. but, I, but I do agree, and I think I think what was hap what's happening is is, is that that artists are, are adding their own if you like sort of religious iconography to, to the image um, they're all adding exactly the same religious iconography aren't they I mean, to, to, to a degree i i mean i i find it fascinating that that the that the face of christ of course is is, is often depicted in a circle with a with a with a cross sort of yeah. behind it which makes me wonder whether that might have been how at that time um the if it is the Mandelian, if it is the the image of Edessa, how that was being presented at the time. Um, I know that it, it it has been speculated, and there are certainly images of the Mandelian that show it, so that the face was sort of cut into a circle, the circle was cut into the frame, allowing this the, the face to sort of show through behind it. And what and it, it, I wonder, and again, it's only speculating, that that maybe that's that's formed part of the image. Certainly, if you're there trying to create as close a representation to the to the holy image as possible maybe they're incorporating that sort of circle around the face in order to show that and um, about the clothing and the book and the gestures well the the, the clothing the book and the gestures uh, i mean on, on my second coin the one that i've got which is you see he, he has the, the artist has put the face of christ in that circle and has then sort of gone outside the circle then to show the uh, to show shoulders and to show him holding something as i said a book the book of life you, you know this this does seem to be a, a sort of a theme which is sort of developed and and sort of carried on um you know it, it that in itself i think is again you know i can certainly sort of see that that doesn't as we know appear obviously on the shroud it's interesting that the face is is kept within that circle which and again if you if that hypothesis is, is correct that this was the frame that the, that the circle was cut into the, the artists would have then used their imagination i imagine to have imagined what christ could have been doing and holding something or, or holding his hands in a particular way um okay. you know that there, there's all that sort of religious iconography sort of around it which is which sort of follows on it's, it's a very specific piece of, of religious iconography which makes me think hmm. that all the coins um derive that aspect of their presentation the clothing the book the gesture is derived from a different image from 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 the, from the face or, or perhaps you're suggesting that it, it there was an original image but it, it i think there was an original image and it has a face on it but that face uh, has been removed and the shroud face replaced instead of it is that what we're saying or are we saying that the original image was these these coins all copied an original image and the, it was the original image that derived from the shroud well this is this is the the, the the million dollar question i mean personally speaking all i can say 
is that there was an engraver in Constantinople in 969 AD who made an absolutely phenomenal job. If I was asked to to draw an image of the shroud of the, of the face that appears on the shroud of Turin, uh, and I looked at that image that we see with the naked eye, uh, and I would I would see the the, the, the long nose, the the, the, the moustache slightly sloped on one side, the forebeard, the, the the eyes which do appear to be closed, the long hair, the fact that he's coming up, all of those details he has managed to capture in something that is little more than one centimetre in diameter. And he's put it in a nice little neat circle. Now, now he's he's either doing that completely from his imagination and it's it's a mind-blowing coincidence that he just happens to replicate the, uh, the, the, the lines that appear on the Shroud of Turin, or he's actually looking at, at what we're looking at today. And, and, and the only way, I think, for anybody to make up their mind is, is to look at the two the two side by side and, and, and decide for yourself. Uh, there are definitely, and Hugh, you're absolutely correct, obviously there are later embellishments um, that we see where we see the inclusion of shoulders and arms and, and books and, and hands being held in a particular way and things like that. And, uh, and artists are using their using the image, but then but then adding their own sort of uh, light artistic license around it. The gold coin of Justinian has the book and the clothes and the shoulders and the hands. Absolutely, that's, you know. So, so yeah, so I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting any 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 of that at all. Uh, I'm I'm saying that um, that coin for the gold coins, uh, the gold coins would have been struck obviously, in far fewer quantities. Um, it would they would have allowed the the engraver uh, much more time to actually produce a a very detailed, um, intricate. Uh, image and that's certainly what we see with Justinian um, You know, with a lot of artistic license, and and they they've created they they've based it, I think, quite clearly on on the image that appears on the shroud. But but yes, you're absolutely correct. I mean, with with lots of additional sort of uh, things on it. I, I think if we fast forward to 969 AD, uh, the coin designer in 969 AD had a, had a bit of a headache, in, in as much as he didn't have the luxury. Of being able to produce a, a, a very detailed die um, in the same way that we would see for the gold coins. Uh, his dies had to be fast, they were produced very quickly. This was a mass produced coin, this was a coin that was going to be going out so, you know, in, in large quantities. And so I think he took the, the most expedient route. And he was obviously, if he was asked to replicate this image as closely as he possibly could, and he was given the opportunity to, to see it. I, I think he, he took what I think was quite a logical approach and he copied the lines that actually appear on, on the shroud that make up the face image. It's not, if you look at it, um, it it's not a, 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 a particularly uh, detailed face uh, in the same way that we see, we see later ones doing. It's quite a crude face. But what we actually see are, are these lines reproduced, I think, incredibly carefully. Um, and I think that, I say, for that reason, I, I'm I am convinced that, uh, that that it's a compelling case for the authenticity of the cloth. Because, you, you know, if we can if we can take it out of the carbon fourteen window and take it back an earlier and show that there were people who were actually looking at this uh, looking at this image uh, two three hundred years before the carbon date says that the crowd existed, uh, I, I think that 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 adds very much to its case for authenticity. Have you have you asked how do, how has your hypothesis gone around amongst fellow numismatists? Well, it, it, yes, I'm glad I'm glad you asked. Um, I it was published in in Coin News, 
which is Europe's largest, uh, biggest selling coin magazine that's peer reviewed. So that was that was very nice to see that uh, go in there. And that prov provoked a, a very lively debate. And I'm very pleased to say it mostly a positive debate. It's not often that coins are actually used to uh, as an argument to actually prove uh, sort of the authenticity of something historical. Um, in fact, I can't think of an instance what it would have done before. But I think this is um, so it, it did produce a, a very lively debate. And I'm very encouraged to hear that it mostly positive. Um, you know, and I think it's uh, it, it's definitely a field of study which which needs to be expanded. Awesome, awesome. All right, cool. Well, yeah, I think that does it. I, I'm really thrilled with how this came off, especially since this is my last panel review proper on the historicity of the shroud. I think it was a great way to end uh, and then move into the scientific evidence of the images. But we do have one uh, audience uh, question here that I think we'll, you guys will get a bit of a laugh at, but. Uh, uh, can Bob play uh, some Elvis gospel on one of those? Guitars? Bob's not laughing. Oh, no. The answer is no. These are my son. <laughs> all right, awesome. So, so yeah, I just want to say thank you so much to all of the panelists for being on. Like I said, it was a great show. And, um, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed your time on your end there. Awesome. Very much. Thank you. That awesome. was great. Perfect. So, so yeah, have a, a great week. Just so the audience knows, my net. So tomorrow, I obviously have the the Why We Are Protestants show on the Faith Unaltered podcast. But the next Shroud related show is actually next Wednesday, the twenty fourth. Um, I tried to bring together a, a medical panel to address the anatomical accuracies and inaccuracies as a follow up. Um, I, unfortunately, they, a lot of them were busy, but I do have Dr. Kevin McQuaid who will be coming on to address some of those aspects. He's a he's a pathologist. So look out for that and have a great week, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. See everybody. Bye then. Take care.